0: Hey, folks, we've got a packed and lengthy uh, episode of the Total Soccer Show coming up for you on this weekend review. Ryan and I break down the Derby della Madonnina. Uh, We get into Bayern v. Leipzig, uh, Leverkusen v. Dortmund, a little bit about Batiste, Barcelona, a lot bit about Batiste, Barcelona, since it was a pretty fascinating game, as well as some updates on Premier League streaming rights in the future and what might happen there. After that, Daryl Grove and I are going to be talking about the U.S. women's national team 3-0 win over Canada in Olympic qualifying. The U.S. had already qualified for the Olympics, but now they've won Olympic qualifying, which is always the goal. But we get into Vlaco's tactics, some players that improved their status, and maybe a couple players that might have some work to do uh, in the ensuing friendlies in the She Believes Cup. But before we get rolling with all that, I wanted to let you know that the Athletic Podcast Network is supported by the Quip Electric Toothbrush, the Tesla of toothbrushes, is what I'm told. Most people's oral care habits could be better. We often brush for fewer than two minutes and use old, worn-out bristles. Quip makes having a fresh, healthy mouth easy and convenient. Their electric toothbrush pulses every Thursday. 30 seconds, So you can clean your mouth evenly and they deliver brush head refills every three months like dentists recommend. Did not know that. Got to change my brush. Uh, so get your first refill free at getquip.com slash listen. That's getquip.com slash listen. Thank you very much to Quip for sponsoring today's episode. I've been drinking coffee all day, so I now feel the need to go brush my teeth. Uh, maybe I'll have to get a Quip electric toothbrush to make that happen. Uh, but until then, uh, on with the show. Welcome to a Weekend Review edition of the Total Soccer Show. I'm your host, Taylor Rockwell. Joining me on the other end of the line is a man who isn't afraid of big storms in England, mostly because he doesn't live there anymore. It's Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan.
1: Hello, Taylor. I'm not afraid of big storms in England, but I am afraid of big storms where I do live, in Charlotte. We had a tornado touchdown last week, Taylor. A tornado.
0: Yeah, it's good times we're living in when tornadoes are just, you know, up and down the eastern seaboard. That's a normal thing. That happens all the time.
1: Yeah, it was... Yeah, I don't, I've lived here nine years. It's the first one of those I've had. And I got very lucky because it seemed the neighbourhoods either side of my house, like lots of houses got ruins and lots of trees fell down. We got away relatively unscathed, but uh, scary. Very scary. That's yeah, I
0: think people love it. <laughs> I think people love it when uh, we talk exclusively about the weather for the first couple of minutes. But I'm going to do it anyway. What was it? Was there one thing when you first moved here that was more alarming to you than anything else was it the like hurricanes that you occasionally had to prep for was it the high heat the humidity was there anything that you kind of struggled to deal with uh early on
1: i think the strangest thing is the changeability in the weather whereas in england it's you know it's mostly gray and you can predict mm-hmm. it's going to be mostly gray every day of the year like i've had weeks where i'm wearing flip-flops and shorts and like it snowed in the same week <laughs> in in this north carolina it's bizarre here
0: Yep. Yeah, I think uh, uh we're fond of saying Richmond has uh like 12 seasons including uh fake summer, fake fall. I think there's second fall, second winter, pothole season. Lots of different good seasons uh that you can't really predict. Oh, uh, you also season. cannot have the sound of that one. Yeah, yeah, it's good times. Uh, you also cannot predict uh, what happened in the M- Milan derby, the derby della Madanina. I think I've got it right. I always want to call it the Milan derby, but Inter would not like that. Uh, Inter Milan versus AC Milan, 4-2 to Inter. Uh, Juve falling to uh, Hellas Verona 2-1 on Saturday was a uh, decently surprised result. Had lots of folks at Juve reportedly questioning uh, both Aaron Ramsey and Maurizio Sarri, uh, so we'll see what happens there. Mm. Lazio's won 0 win over Parma on Sunday, kept the pressure on Inter, who went down 2-0 to Milan uh at i think just prior to halftime they come out they get th- three quick goals they end up 4-2 uh with a big victory there which keeps them or uh, moves them to the top of the table i should say this was very much of a, ga- a game of two halves uh to use the old cliche ryan what did you make of this one overall
1: uh firstly i'll say i was sort of uh, and an, uh, anxious about this weekend not having very much premier league and even less premier league because of the aforementioned weather in mm-hmm. england but Sunday gave us two of the best games I feel I've seen in a long time we're going to talk about the other one later but this one included can you remember a better Milan derby than this in recent memory I think there was a high scoring one maybe a couple years ago but I don't remember it being as exciting as this what a game
0: I agreed entirely, and I think a big part of that is because Inter are now in the position they're in, uh, in the past, maybe we would have uh, Milan getting a little bit closer to the top, but never really vying with Juve, uh, at least not in recent history and so to have this game have potential title implications and then be very good on top, and then you've got the big names coming in, like uh, every former Manchester United player I think was playing <laughs> in this game uh, it really sort of brought out more of an atmosphere and then just the way it, it ended up going down was Laton uh, scoring and being being heavily involved and then into roaring back out and getting three quick goals. It was really, really dynamic. Very loud. You could get the sense of the atmosphere. You could get a sense of the moment. And I think that's something that's definitely been lacking in recent seasons.
1: I think maybe this game was defined by the former Manchester United players, Tete. They, yeah. they just looked like they had such big smiles on their faces. The freedom they felt to express themselves. Ah. Oh. Wonderful
0: stuff. It, it was it was revealing, <laughs> I'll say that much, because, I mean, Lukaku, we know, has been having a strong season in Serie A. Uh, Alexis Sanchez, I have heard, has been having a strong season. I have not seen as much of him. And so I saw some of the familiar Alexis Sanchez of maybe outrunning the rest of the team and then getting frustrated when everybody else didn't realize he was going to go 140 miles an hour. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But then I saw tight control, good passing, good link-up play, a lot of movement off the ball, uh, like patient hard work, but then making way when he needed to without much protestation. It, it felt like a rejuvenated Alexis Sanchez. I actually kind of hope he stays at Inter because it's nice to see him playing well. But Ashley Young looked solid. Zlatan obviously looked uh, pretty decent. And yet with all that said, I might have to say the most standout performance to me was DeVry, uh, the center back for uh, Inter, because that man can win a header, Ryan.
1: He was rather good, wasn't he? I, th- I think yeah. he's among the best centre-backs in, in the world right now. Possibly, quite possibly the best centre-back in Serie A, I think we could say. And it, this just got me thinking about about the Dutch at Euro 2020, because they've got him, they've it's got Virgil the van Dijk, and they've got mm-hmm. uh, De lick. Poor old De going to get left out if they, if they don't do like a 3-5-2 with like three centre-backs in it, because... He's on hot form right now. Very impressive. And that header, as you say, that diving header, there was some, there was some great, you know, uh, uh, Brozovic's volley was incredible, mm-hmm. uh, amazing technique. But I think that Devre header was my favorite goal. That glancing angled header is so difficult to execute and it looked fantastic.
0: It really did. And I think a big part of it is because, as you said, he's sort of diving away from goal, but he does the kind of redirected directional header that puts it into the side netting that makes it look so pretty. But it also combines the sort of technical ability to pull that off with the fact that he's... Uh, in the lead-up to it off the corner, he's trying to evade uh, Romagnoli a little bit. Like He's standing on the other side of the scrum, and then as soon as the ball comes in, he runs straight at Romagnoli, kind of bumps into him, and uses that little bump to create the separation to then dive backwards and get that header. So that's an amazing header. But even, um, I think, for the first goal, for that Brozovic hit, it starts with the ball being partially cleared, mm. and it's De Vrij who wins the header over his Latan to keep possession for Inter that allows it to recycle, that eventually leads to the shot that's blocked, and then the volley from Brozovic. So even that sort of like resolute defensive presence, the resolute aerial battle that he could win and then scores the goal. I was just really impressed by his positioning and fight and then also technical ability, obviously, but uh, a very, very strong performance from Stefan de Vrij.
1: And definitely, I think it a very strong performance from Inter as well, you know, despite going two goals down, this it was, it was a, a, a game of two halves, as you mentioned. There were some really good standout performances. I thought Devry being one of them. Sanchez, as we mentioned, I thought he was excellent. He created chances. Uh, You know, he got that assist as well. He was pressing, uh, made a lot of good runs. He won the ball lots more than he seemed bothered to do when he was wearing a red shirt. And he was much better in the second half as well. And that run he did for the the goal, was it the 2-2 goal where he sort Mm -hmm. of beat the offside trap and he beat it by millimeters. And he He really did. They
0: never showed us a replay. I had to go, or at least not that I saw, I had to go back and and freeze frame it because I was convinced he was at least a couple of yards outside. Oh yeah! Instead, when, I believe it was Conti who just barely keeps him on.
1: Yeah, when you watched it live, you were like, "That's getting called back immediately." No yeah. way, that was a goal, but he did it, and that was an example, of sort of the, the, the runs you were talking about there. That he, he was very impressive in there. You know, Lukaku—he was putting in some good defensive uh, defensive action as well. I thought he was getting in the box and clearing some balls away. I was impressed with him uh, in this game as well. And just looking at that um, into team on paper looking at that 352 and some of the names mm. in it it's a really strong squad that Conte's put together there now isn't it
0: It certainly is, because you had uh, Handanovic not involved in this one. You had some suspensions, you had some injuries, so that certainly didn't help. But then you had, uh, what, two January signings, Victor Moses, Christian Eriksen coming in uh, in the second half. Eriksen, I believe, was because of a lack of match fitness, or at least a perceived lack of match fitness. But, yeah, some of the players he's brought in, the way they're going to gel into that squad, and then how good some of the players that have already been brought in, like, say, Diego Godin, Mm. how good he looks, again, he was sort of playing out of position due to suspensions. That team just looked solid. From top to bottom. And with the shakiness, or at least the current shakiness of Juve, uh, it does feel like that next week's game, uh, Lazio v Napoli, is going to be pretty exciting.
1: Yeah, I'd say so. There's some interesting fixtures coming up there, because it's Napoli, uh, Napoli for Inter next, then Lazio yeah. after that, and then for Milan next week. I've got Juventus, by the way. So both Milan sides have got um, got some challenges coming up ahead. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this this was just a really really exciting game with with a, with a nice comeback. Everybody loves a comeback. Uh, had some really good goals. That Brozovic, as we mentioned, that really amazing volley. Although little defensive pressure on him. I thought there yeah. was some interesting defending going on in this game. You know, for for Serie A, uh, some yeah. some, uh, some shortcomings definitely, even on like the. Zlatan's header, where that corner came in. This is Zlatan's header for the for the two nil goal for Milan. He got the assist for the first one, which was a strange tap in where Rebic was. He kind of did that celebration like did. Was that a goal? It seemed too yep. easy. Um, <laughs> then, uh, then for the second for the second one, for Zlatan's header, well taken header. Although maybe the keeper could have held onto it a little yep. better. Uh, Mr. Padelli could have done a bit better with that, but it just didn't seem like very good defending. From Inter, they had seven. I counted seven blue shirts in the box. Milan had four. The ball was basically allowed to bounce. It didn't quite bounce. Mm-hmm. It dipped to the floor. I felt like they could have done a little bit better in that
0: situation, for sure. Uh, you will get no arguments from me. Um, and I want to talk about maybe why Inter looks so discombobulated in that first half. Because, as we said, it was a fight back from Inter. But it starts with, at halftime, it being 2-0 uh, to Milan, uh, Ante Rebic, and then Zlatan with the header uh, very late in the se- in the first half. And I think it's because when you—my assumption, at least from watching this game, was that Inter expected Milan to maybe sit a little bit deeper to look for long balls to Zlatan that he would then knock knock down and have runners come off of him. But I don't think Inter expected Milan to be so aggressive in their press and stepping so high. And as a result, Inter kept just having to clear the ball in the first maybe 15 minutes. They could never really find a rhythm. It was instead just sort of hopeful clearances out of the back that Milan were then able to kind of reestablish possession and go at them. And you had the warning signs of like Chalanolu hitting the post from a, a really, really nice shot uh, that could have put him up one nil very early on. But that's Barella trying to make something happen, happen and dribble out of the back. He gets dispossessed. It leads to that chance. And I think Inter, from that moment on, were just sort of on their heels and knocked back, didn't expect that level of fight and tenacity from Milan. And so the commentators, who I wasn't a huge fan of, but the commentators kept speculating, what did Antonio Conte say at halftime to get Inter back up? What were the big changes? And to me, it just felt like, hey, Go forward. Send numbers <laughs> forward. Why are you all sitting back? And I think that is what happened, is with the pressure from Elon in the first half, Inter sat off and sat off and sat off, and they couldn't really connect through the middle. They couldn't really have much attack and play. In the second half, they commit numbers forward in the first 15 minutes and get three goals. Yeah. And that really makes a massive difference in terms of, or excuse me, in the first 10 minutes. I think they get two goals. first 25 minutes, they get three. Right. But just that level of committing numbers forward. Uh, intensity on the ball, committing to possessing instead of just hoping long and hoping you don't make a mistake. That was to me the big turnaround uh, and how Inter were able to kind of claw their way back into this.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think there's part of uh, AC Milan to blame in that as well. As, as strong as they came out in the first half, let's give them credit for the first half, by the way. And mm-hmm. I think that the four four two really suits this team pretty well. Particularly, it suits Latam very well. You know, it's it's twenty twenty, and he he was. Uh, the, the half time narrative was that say he was dominating a Milan derby which is pretty amazing uh, it seemed i like the way that Talanolu was playing off of him as well sort of a, al- almost almost number 10ish behind mm-hmm. him despite being up there with him and then you got Rebic it, it's got like Ibra was kind of like almost a hold up guy sort of attracting the defenders like flies to him and then you got Rebic coming in on the left and finding the space and taking men on i thought that 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 formation worked really well for them but it just seems like it, 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 the way that Inter increase the intensity in the second half, it sort of combined with Milan falling apart in the second half. They just didn't have the same drive. It just seemed like they. it was a mentality issue as well, I think, a little bit to it.
0: Yeah, I think think so too, and I think that maybe you've got to give a little bit of credit to Antonio Conte, not just for rejuvenating Inter at halftime, but for really kind of sticking with it. And once they had the momentum, I think oftentimes you'll see the manager then, okay, we're up 3-2, we're going to back off now, we're going to sit in deep, and we're going to frustrate and then look to counter. Mm. And I think to their credit, and it could have gone wrong because Latan does hit the post uh, in the dying moments, uh, but when it's still 3-2, that could have made it 3-3. But I think you've got to give credit to, to Antonio Conte for sort of backing his players to keep it going, to keep the pressure on, to keep finding the kind of killer goal, which they eventually get from Lukaku in the 90 plus three minute. Um, but Ericsson coming on and looking like he fit in really well, looking at the calmest player on the field as we've come to expect from him. It mm-hmm. felt just sort of like Antonio Conte maybe he didn't get his tactics right I don't know if he got them wrong I just think he didn't have the team prepared to go but that kind of adjustment at halftime and then the willingness to back them and keep them going I think was the big difference here contrasted with Milan who I think thought they had it right I think Zlatan came out and said we kind of targeted the first 10 to 15 minutes of the second half as being fundamentally important to getting a result and then we conceded two goals and we didn't really have the experience we needed to see that game out and I yeah. think that's really kind of the narrative of this game is one team just kind of having the drive and the away- awareness and the familiarity to get the results, and one team having the opposite of that.
1: Some nice hindsight analysis from there from Zlatan to target after <laughs> the second half wonderful Captain hindsight. there. Wonderful stuff. You mentioned um <laughs> Ericsson there and when he came on, that that free kick he had that hit the sort of the post the top mm-hmm. corner. The upper 90, if you want in um Thank you. in your Thank parlance. You. Take, take. Yep. Now
0: I understand what you're talking you about. How
1: how does he hit a ball that hard with basically side footing it? I don't know. How does that technique work? I don't understand the physics. It was great. I, I, always,
0: I always look to see, because I remember years ago, there was the video of Ronaldo, and he always put it on the needle, so that he could hit the needle to give him a little bit more impact, but make it knuckle a little bit more. Hmm. So I always pay attention to that. I don't believe Ericsson does that. I think maybe he just has like super hard insteps. Maybe that's what it is. He just practices like kicking metal balls, and that <laughs> gives him the... I guess broken feet that mend to be able to smash the ball the way he does. I don't know how he gets that velocity on it, but it's uh, it's pretty spectacular when he does. Maybe
1: broken feet explains a lot of his past few months at Spurs. That's, that's something. Also anyway, that. but as you say, um, <laughs> the uh, the the uh, Ebert goal, the Ebert, when he hit the post as well, that could have changed things uh, late on as well. And there was. After De Vries amazing aforementioned diving header, there was a few chances. There was Jerickson's chance. There was, uh, I think Barella had a one-on-one, which he mm. fluffed as well. And Ibra hit in the post. This game could have gone in so many different directions. It was crazy. It was so gosh-darn entertaining. That's what we're here for, tay
0: Yes, sir. I think it was so entertaining that uh, the fourth goal for Lukaku, it's a great little layoff uh, that facilitates the counter attack. But then it's almost like... Inter are just sort of moving the ball around, trying to kill the game off. And Milan are sort of just like, all right, fine, just blow the whistle. Like, whatever, the game's over. Yeah. And Victor Moses, almost awkwardly, is like... I- I'll play it to Lukaku I guess who's like wide open at the back post it was <laughs> it was really entertaining and then that final couple minutes with that goal were just sort of like oh, okay I guess there's another one in there why not? Well, Milan was, just kind of switching off
1: yeah it was, switching off is the key key phrase there because I think uh, into second goal and that fourth goal was if you just look at it it's Milan's defence just standing around they are literally <laughs> just standing around and I think who, who puts the ball in for Moses look, it's, it's trapped in the corner and there's two Milan shirts on the player I can't remember who it was but the ball somehow gets freed out of it and they're all and that might put panic into uh, the centre-backs at that point but they were just like eh whatever the game's nearly over can I go home yet? And then this this (laughs) fairly simple cross comes in from Victor Moses as you say to Lukaku the, the, the Premier League goal there and it just felt like you guys did not put enough effort in no. right there, frankly.
0: No, I think that was—I think it was Vecino who gets forward for that one. I might be wrong, right. but yeah, I, I'm with you that it felt sort of like Milan were just like, all right, we had our chance. You guys are in our defensive third. We'll just give up, right? We're all yeah. gonna give it up. It's gonna be three-two, and then it finishes <laughs> four-two, which again uh, uh, puts Inter top of the table with the three points uh, ahead of Juve on goal difference, both on fifty-four points. Lazio in third on fifty-three. Atalanta in fourth, but not quite in that title race. So I'm assuming that Ryan and I will be talking Lazio. Uh, hosting Inter Milan in next week's uh, Weekend Review. We'll take a look at Serie A, but right now we're going to talk some Bundesliga. It's time for the German League. But first, maybe, Ryan, is it time for a word from today's sponsor? You know it is, Tay-Tay. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. Today's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. You can get mouth-watering seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door with HelloFresh America's number one meal kit delivery service. HelloFresh makes cooking at home fun, easy, and, most importantly, affordable. Got some facts for you right here. HelloFresh recipes, they are
1: so delicious. Fact. Break out your dinner up with HelloFresh's 22-plus seasonal chef-curated recipes each week. There's something for everyone. Low-calorie, vegetarian, and family-friendly recipes every single gosh darn week. HelloFresh has more five-star recipes than any other meal kit, so you'll know you're going to get something hella
0: delicious, baby. You certainly will. They cut out uh, stressful meal planning and prepping so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner uh, on time uh, as easy as possible. Their pre-portioned ingredients mean there's less prep for you and less food waste, which is really important because I always buy a little bit too much and then save that like quarter onion and that like a third of a tomato because I'm definitely going to use that and then it sits and it sits and it sits and I kind of forget about it and then eventually it spoils and then I feel bad for food waste. I'm not the only Uh, one.
1: That's good to know.
0: Yeah, no. And then I'm always like, I'm going to make a, a vegetable stock out of that one. And I freeze it all. And then six months later, my wife is like, why do we have an entire freezer full of vegetable scraps? You don't have to worry about that with HelloFresh because either they're going to have the exact right amount of ingredients that you need or... Or they will teach you how to use those secondary things to make like a sauce that you wouldn't otherwise have utilized and then put that into the meal. It's a very useful way to uh, really cut down on the amount of food that you're wasting.
1: And you know what else it cuts down on, tay t- What's that?
0: Wasted time. Do you know the no average,
1: tip to, average tip to the grocery store, the average trip to the grocery store, oh it takes 41 minutes. I think my trips take more, frankly, because yeah. I have children in
0: tow and it's very annoying. But that's over 35. I, I am a child in tow to myself and that's why my grocery store trips always end up with like five times as many things I thought I was going to get, yeah, much to my wife's chagrin. You have
1: wishful thinking about rotting <laughs> in your fridge that you buy in there mm-hmm. and you waste. There's none of that with HelloFresh. And uh, by the way, that's stat about 41 minutes to the grocery store. We've mentioned this before. The source there of that statistic, the Time Institute. I'm fascinated by the Time Institute. <laughs> the I want to know more Institute. about them. The
0: Time the timekeeper runs the Time Institute, I believe. <laughs> uh, so go to HelloFresh.com slash TSS10. Use the code TSS10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. One more time, that's HelloFresh.com slash TSS10. Use code TSS10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. Thank you very much to HelloFresh for sponsoring today's episode. Thank you very much to the Bundesliga for playing soccer this weekend, mostly playing soccer. Uh, Gladbach's game against FC Koln was called off due to... Uh, is it What is the Storm's name? I keep forgetting the Storm's name. Oh, it's a... A female
1: name, which I forget. Ciara? Ciara?
0: Ciara. Yeah, I think it, I think that's it. So, yeah. only the one game in the Premier League, only one game suspended in the Bundesliga uh, where we had another up-and-down, but sort of expected uh, weekend overall. Uh, Bayern kept their spot at top of the table with Leipzig staying close behind in that 0-0 draw. Dortmund were made to suffer for their defensive inefficiencies. We're definitely going to talk about that, but let's start with Bayern's 0-0 draw with Leipzig. This seemed to be one of those excellent examples, and a rare example, of the time when a 0-0 draw can be incredibly fun to watch, and you sort of expect it to finish four four, even as you know it's going to finish nil nil.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think I tweeted words to that effect after the game as well. Very good example of how a goalless draw can be enthralling entertainment. And I will echo your thanks to the Bundesliga. You just uh, led into this segment excellently with Taylor because thank you, my We had another great weekend of Bundes- Bundesliga action. We had the top three teams, none of them winning, and it's all nope. very tight. Four points between the top three as well. So very exciting stuff. And this game was. Absolutely brilliant as a spectacle, wasn't it? And before we get into the soccer stuff, can I give Mm -hmm. a sort of a thumbs, not sure, maybe thumbs down to the whole commercial political energy yes. around this game so there was a lot of um there's a lot of hate for rb leipzig because of their red Bull sponsorship yes, because they're only like a decade old and because they they don't haven't done things the german way there's a german uh, football magazine elf Gwende, uh, 11 friends oh they uh, they say they would they said they wouldn't be covering this game because uh and, and i quote rb is not a normal club even when many seem uh, to have forgotten that in, uh, uh, so they've sort of They're not even acknowledging them as an entity, which I find interesting. And I get that because, you know, there's the fan-owned model, there's the 50 plus one rule where, you know, all the clubs... um have to have a, a majority fan ownership, except for, you know, the ones that don't have to, like Bayer Leverkusen, who are owned by Bayer. Yeah. All those, all like, there's, these, there's these notable exceptions mm. that happen to those things. Yeah. But also, I found it a bit galling. There was a very rude banner that was on the display mm-hmm. at the Allianz Arena. Allianz, one of Bayern's major sponsors. Huh. Um, who uh, <laughs> There was a, it was a very rude uh, banner aimed at RB Leipzig, not for a family show, but you can look it up if you want. Criticising mm-hmm. the, the club, the East German club. And then when you watch the game on TV, Taylor, you're watching um, many fans dressed in white shirts in yeah. the shape of the a co- what- uh, telecom company <laughs> that, are, that are sponsored by Munich. So you've got fans criticizing the commercialism mm-hmm. of their opponents while dressed as the logo of the telecom company who, uh, who's, uh, who fund the team. And Bayern, don't, let's not forget, who are owned partially by Audi. Uh, mm-hmm. Allianz and Adidas, they have premium partners including Qatar Airways and they have the gall to uh, have, a, have a little poker RB Leipzig. There's my piece. I'll get off my soapbox now.
0: I I I'm glad you've gotten off because I'm gonna hop right on it. Uh, first of all, we don't know for sure that those weren't just fans who all coordinated wearing all white, sort of alien-looking garb, so that they would stand <laughs> on. The, no, we do know that it was definitely. I think it was T-Mobile. Well, apparently, um, they get
1: um, they get free seats. They're they're apprentices who work for the company and they get free seats to go and sit there. And it reminded me a bit of you know behind the uh, goal at um, the Bernabeu where they all wear white, which yes. is a much less commercial <laughs> and cynical <laughs> version of it. But yeah, anyway.
0: But we had, uh, uh, Manuel Fates, who was on the show, uh, last week. I think he tweeted something along the lines of like, Byron also, in addition to the insulting banner that you, uh, you mentioned, uh, they had the against modern football banner in their stadium. So you had that on one side and then you had, uh, their fans dressed up to support their, yeah. uh, mobile sponsor on the other. So a bit, a bit hypocritical there. But I think the bigger thing for me, and this is sort of something that Alexi Lalas, uh, slightly tongue-in-cheek, slightly trolling, but I still think it was a valid point, uh, he talked about this in the pregame, that I, I understand that there are people in the Bundesliga who like really respect the tradition and grew up in the Bundesliga and will never be okay with Leipzig. And I think those people are justified if that's the way they want to go. But for me, I look at it as... A, a team that were not having success that had a massive amount of investment that are spending money and that in my opinion are pushing everyone else to spend money because we haven't had a title race in a very long time or at least not a a true title race where we yeah. felt like it wasn't just going to be either Bayern Munich or Borussia Dortmund and I think they Leipzig's like, sort of presence in the league, the money they've spent, how strong they've been, the coaching hires they've made, it has necessitated other clubs spending money. Do Borussia Dortmund go out and sign Emre Jean and uh, Erling, Erling Holland this winter if they aren't being pushed by Leipzig? I don't know, but it's a question that I at least have. And so while I understand the. Frustration with commercialization and everything else that, that is happening in modern soccer. It's happening everywhere, to your point. And so, to me, it's a team that are playing exciting soccer and making other teams play better. I, I'm okay with that, even if I understand the sort of historical frustrations that people might have.
1: Yeah, I think there's, there's a balance there. Maybe we sound tone-deaf to uh, Bayern hardcore fans. I'm sure we do. Uh, but it just feels, from a more balanced perspective, that it does feel, as you say, that banner might have uh, been difficult to read because it was dripping in a... In a well, Mm-hmm. What's the words? You know,
0: <laughs> it was ironic. <laughs> I think Leipzig were slightly difficult for Bayern to read as well. Uh, they came out in what I would say was a surprise back five Uh Except that it didn't really surprise Bayern for that long because with Tyler Adams kind of sitting in as the right wing back, uh, yeah. you had uh, you basically had so much space for Bayern to continually find pockets, and then with uh, Tyler Adams sitting in, it invited the fullbacks from Bayern forward. So you had uh, oh shoot, who was it on the, on the right side whose name I always forget? Uh, the Frenchman, oh Pavard? Pavard, Benjamin Pavard, yeah. Uh, and Eon then you scoring had scoring Fons- amazing
1: World Cup goals. How can you forget?
0: I know, and I, 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 and it's always the curls that bring me back to Pavar because he's got the kind of the curly mat on top, which uh, I am sympathetic to. Do you watch I have um, the same? Do you watch the TV show Modern Family?
1: He always reminds me of uh, one of the sons in Modern Family, whose name I forget. He's, oh, he's, Luke, Luke, Luke,
0: I'm guessing, Luke. yeah. <laughs> That's a good call. Uh, between that and uh, we'll talk about him later, uh, Kevin Volland um, <laughs> was... Or will we talk about him later? Yeah, we will talk about him later. Sure. Kevin Volland looks exactly like Zac Efron to me, and I want people to Google that and tell me if I'm right or wrong. I feel like I'm going to get a lot of you're crazy and you're wrong. I but, think he'll take uh, that. He'll take that, for sure. <laughs> I'm sure he will. Um, but yeah, I think the other thing was that you had Pavar on one side, but more importantly, you had Alfonso Davies attacking the other and really showcasing why he is so important to Bayern Munich, because he can get involved in the attack, he takes people on, he makes things happen, he creates uncertainty, but then his closing speed is so ridiculous. I tweeted this out that I think in the fourth minute, Leipzig's game plan basically works, that they're sitting in, but then they're looking to hit long, they're looking to hit on the break, they're sort of inviting Bayern Munich forward, and then looking to expose some of the lack of pace in the back line, particularly Jerome Boateng. It works, Timo Werner gets the ball in space, Afonso Davies closes maybe 20 yards very, very quickly and ends yeah. up just sort of cleanly winning the ball and reestablishing possession. And at that point, you see Timo Werner switch to the other side, uh, Leipzig changed it up a little bit, and I think that was sort of the wake-up call to Leipzig of, we've sort of gotten this right, but you can't really plan, or at least we haven't really uh, game-planned for Alfonso Davies doing all the Alfonso Davies things that he was doing.
1: Yeah, definitely. There was that that, that that moment you mentioned, and there was one later on in the game where he sort of skinned a couple of players and got into the box and skinned another player, and it was really, really good to see. I've just I'm thinking out loud here. But Alfonso Davies, I think I read here on Twitter that his top speed is 34 kilometers an hour, around the same speed as a bottlenose dolphin, apparently. But I'm thinking... That's impressive. A very quick left back who's taken, taken the European game by storm. Do you think he's going to be signed by Real Madrid and become a striker soon? Because he's he's you know maybe he's <laughs> going to follow that Gareth Bale
0: path. I mean, it, it, I have seen uh, stranger things happen. I don't think Bayern Munich are going to want to let him go. I certainly don't <laughs> think they'll want to let him go for cheap, but... The way he played in this game, I wouldn't be surprised if he starts getting some suitors, if he starts getting some offers. But I will also say that I think if we're going to give Alfonso Davies credit, I will give Tyler Adams credit. Because I think he was doing—I know that this is uh, being seen through red, white, and blue tinted glasses. But I felt like Tyler Adams was being asked to do an incredibly difficult job of— Occasionally sitting in and being part of a back five, but then also being the one to step out to apply pressure when nobody else was. So there were moments when he had to sprint 30 yards to try to get to Davies or try to get to the left center back or try to get to whoever he could to cause problems. But then he also kind of played centrally, especially in the second half. He was more of a midfielder, but still had to get back. And I think was essentially being asked to do three or four different things and almost play two or three different positions all at once. And that he didn't stand out in a noticeably bad way while having to do all of those things made him stand out in a positive. Wait a
1: I thought he had a decent game. i got his stats here. He won two aerial duels. He had a shot. He had a key- one key pass. He had two interceptions and three tackles. As you say, it wasn't an outstanding performance, but not a bad one at all. Can I just say, by the way, Davies, Adams and Angelino uh, means three ex-MLS players starting in this top-tier Bundesliga game. That's pretty good to see, isn't it?
0: I mean, that's it. League's taken over. There that's we go. it. The best, it's the best league in the world. Uh that's <laughs> definitely what's happened here. Uh, and I think I think I want to give credit to, to both sides, sort of, because I think Leipzig did get their tactics right. I think Nogglesman adjusted a little bit to kind of counteract what Bayern were trying to do, especially with Davies. And really, Leipzig should have gotten the points here. Uh Timo Werner has a couple bad misses, uh, one of the second half that he at least should have put on frame, mm. but definitely should have uh found a way to score. Basically, it was their game plan working out. It was in Cuckoo uh, catching Boateng, being a little bit slow. Uh, Boateng does eventually get subbed off. I think Hansi Flick recognizing that uh, this is not a foot race. I want to happen, have happened. And Cuckoo plays in Timo Werner should have at least hit the frame. Should have at least uh, been a moment when like Bayern get punished for their kind of lax defending and their lack of pace. And instead, that miss felt like that big chance gone. And from then on, uh, I think Leipzig shift back to like a five-two-three. Adams moves into midfield. But at that point, it just sort of felt like. A okay, they're going to maybe keep keep chasing, but we've seen this game before when they should have scored, they should have had, taken those opportunities, and they didn't. But Bayern didn't seem as capable of breaking through either. So it felt like at that point, like, OK, this is going to be nil-nil. And that is, in the end, how it ended up playing out.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think you're right there. Uh, Leipzig got punished for not taking their chances on the counter. Two really good mm-hmm. ones, particularly that one you mentioned just after the half-hour mark with Werner missing from that and cuckoo uh, sort of perfect pass to him, really. Uh, no excuses there. Can I give a thumbs down to Oh, uh, I
0: forgot so- there was one of those in the first half, too. Yeah, there was a couple. <laughs> Two
1: different chances. There was a couple of, uh, of on-the-break Surely yeah. they've outnumbered them. This is gonna be the goal, but it didn't happen, unfortunately. Um uh, can I c can, can I give a... Um, oh, let me give a thumbs up first before I go to my thumbs down. Uh Upa from mm-hmm. real big uh, real real <laughs> Real Big Leipzig, I almost said, like real big fish. <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs>
0: That's their new name. They've changed it again from Ball Sport to uh, Real Big Leipzig. Real
1: Big Leipzig is what they shall Hits fourth. Be known as. He was excellent in this game, wasn't he? I mean, he he'd kind of did. He he gave away the pa- the foul uh, for the penalty, didn't he?
0: Uh, yes, he did. Yeah. He did. Uh, it was yeah. It was, was it clumsy. was an awkward awkward clip on Lewandowski. Does give it the penalty, but uh, doesn't end up being punished too bad for it.
1: Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, it, it didn't happen, obviously, but.
0: Was it overruled for offside? Is that what it was? That's
1: correct. Yeah, it was offside yeah, in the build-up uh, when Lewandowski picked up the ball, I believe. But apart from that, I thought he had a really good game. Wasn't he good?
0: Uh, who, Ab- 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 Of Yeah. Yeah. Yes, uh, and it was uh, Sam Tai on the show last week. I think, I can't remember if this was on the show or afterwards when we were just chatting, was just saying that, like, Opa Makano was one of those players that he he hears the hype, he watches regularly, and every now and then he sees the moments, but he also sees those moments of, like, ah, I'm not quite sure. And I think that penalty would be a moment where he would see that and think, like, ah, you got to be a little bit more precise in your tackling in the box there, though he doesn't end up getting punished because it was offside. You still have those moments where, like, ah, is he quite at that level? But I think overall, the way he sort of marshaled the defense and was the kind of rock at the back for Leipzig, I think he really was a massive difference maker. I think this was a game, though, for me, similar to what Sam was saying about Upamakano, where I have had the same feeling about Timo Werner, that I understand Timo Werner is an amazing striker, he scores lots of goals, he has been incredibly prolific in the Bundesliga, and yet when I watch him... Only seldom do I see him sort of be this lights-out player that people cannot play, that he scores these amazing goals. Instead, I see moments like I saw this weekend where he misses some clear-cut opportunities, Mm. doesn't even get them on frame on both occasions. And then, aside from that, like moves around a lot. It's a lot of running. But oftentimes it was running to sometimes close down space or block off options. But it felt more just sort of like running around to try to make something happen, which isn't necessarily what you want to see, your main goal scorer, your your primary threat. You don't necessarily want to see him doing that sort of work. And so this was another moment for me where I thought Timo Werner could have really elevated his game and taken it to that next level level and been that player who sort of saw off the threat of Bayern Munich. And instead, I still have questions about him in a way that I don't really want to have questions. I just want to believe that Timo Werner is an amazing player.
1: Yeah, I can buy that. I can buy the inconsistency argument. But I suppose you've got to remember, this was an away game at the Allianz Arena. Very there's, true. There's, Very a, there's true. a different kind of... Uh, pressure and atmosphere on him there and i think that speaks to Uba meccano as well you know basically keeping helping to keep a clean sheet another way game at bayern like that is very impressive with him but can i give my thumbs down now i'm sorry to do uh, this you
0: can i feel like i know where it's going and i'm excited to talk about it
1: it's not a real big leipzig player it's a bayern player um <laughs> Philippe coutinho who came yeah. on um, he came on for sojnabry about the hour mark and mm-hmm. i think he did a really good uh, invisibility trick maybe because he, he was he, when he wasn't doing bad things, he was completely anonymous. Uh, it got his stats here. He had 18 touches. He lost possession seven times. So of 18 touches, he lost possession seven of those times. That's not a great ratio. He had zero no. key passes, and he lost uh, two of his two duels. Not a classic match for him. Uh, I think I saw a comment somewhere on Twitter saying you could actually watch um, his value dropping during this game. Barcelona, You could watch Barcelona losing money as this game pro- progressed.
0: It certainly did not help his cause either. And I I think he is probably the biggest... (laughs) It sounds so harsh, but, like, the biggest loser of this game because... For everything else we've said, for Timo Werner being there, his movement caused problems. He did at least put himself in those situations to score the goal. Yes, if McConnell concedes the penalty that doesn't end up happening, but also does a really good job defensively uh, for the rest of the game and is a massive player. For Felipe Coutinho, he comes in and is almost part of the problem, that Serge Gnabry did not have a particularly good game, in my opinion. Mm. But when you're bringing an impact player or a potential impact player on the 60th minute, that feels pre-planned, that feels like, okay, we've got Gnabry, he's run at them for 15 more minutes, he's tried to tire them out now we're going to bring on Coutinho to sort of pick them apart and when he doesn't do that and doesn't really link up play and doesn't facilitate attacks you've sort of wasted a substitution and taken off another player and really put yourself in a hole and I think that's at least part of the reason why Byron weren't able to put together more consistent attacks in those final 30 minutes
1: so what do you think it is what what is what has happened to Coutinho is it a confidence issue is it he's not secretly not as good as we thought he was previously
0: well, we were when Daryl and I were in Germany, uh, like earlier in the season. The way Bayern executives were talking about Coutinho was as this sort of like we've still got these world class players, we've still got these these high profile players. And it's worth noting that was still when Nico Kovac was there. Yeah. And I just wonder if with Kovac departing, Hansi Flick comes in. Hansi Flick probably was aware of what was happening behind the scenes, and maybe thinks Coutinho either doesn't fit his system or doesn't work the right way for what Hansi Flick wants to do, or wasn't working for what Kovac wanted to do. And so all I can figure is that you've got a player who's maybe not in the best of form, not in the most confident of moods, being brought in to kind of like do a, like specific jobs that maybe in that moment it just sort of takes a couple of minutes to get into it, and if you don't get into it right away, you have a sort of quicksand game. We'll talk more about quicksand games with another uh, young player later on, not to say that Coutinho is particularly young, uh, but I just wonder if maybe that's what it was, that it's just sort of the situation is no longer ideal for him the way maybe it seemed like it was in September or October, and with that comes a lack of confidence, and with, with that comes a return to Barcelona at the end of the season. Oh boy, it's kind of sad to see, isn't it? It really is, because I thought that was going to work out. Bayern seem to be very good at sort of incorporating cast-off players into their squad and then making them sort of elevate their game to reach that of the entire team. Coutinho felt like a player who was going to do that and in the end has not, or at least has not of yet. We'll see how the rest of the season plays out. Uh, I
1: think we've we've just figured out the the
0: problem here. He should have gone to Inter Milan.
1: That's, That's where he better. would have been rehabbed. That's where <laughs> well, he to needed to go to Man at.
0: United first to then go to Inter Milan. That's the rule, I think. Sure. <laughs> uh, but uh, we do have Bayern Munich, as I said, still top of the table after the draw, uh, one point ahead of uh, Leipzig. Dortmund not able to close ground, though it seemed like they would because they did take the lead. It felt like, again, that Dortmund were once again going to kind of blow the doors off. And in the end, Leverkusen fight back, get a 4-3 win. Ryan, where should we start with this one? Where shall we start with
1: this one? Mm-hmm. Another, can you believe it? Another week, another Borussia Dortmund game with loads of goals in it. Um, shocking. I know, shocking, isn't it? The last 15 games they've played, they've averaged 4.9 goals per game. So that's, uh, that's very interesting. Shall we start with uh, Mr. Hartland, who I think yeah. we can all agree now is a massive fraud. He played a I mean, whole obviously. game here, didn't score a single goal, sell him off. He's, he's a has-been.
0: <laughs> he did have some he did get himself into some good moments he did get some decent shooting opportunities yeah. uh, and I know that you're, you're saying that uh, tongue in cheek because his goal scoring record is absurd <laughs> but uh, I knew the results oh no I, I guess I knew that there were a lot of goals and I had heard that uh, uh, Dortmund lost this game that's basically what I knew going in I tried to keep the score kind of secret on this one I tend to if I know the result uh, like after the game has happened then I'll rewatch it from a perspective of like okay I know the result let's figure out how they got here with this This one I was just excited to watch, but I kind of knew that Holland wasn't going to score, and yet I still found myself drawn to him because he is so ridiculously good in the air that it was almost a game plan of Dortmund to just move the ball around the back, like pull Leverkusen forward, and then eventually just hoof it long. And he wins everything. He (laughs) kept like uh, in the lead up to one of their goals. I think it ends up being... Like a sixteen pass move, one of those passes is Holland winning a header that like is a sixty yard clearance that he heads directly to the feet of one of his teammates. I believe it's Witzel, who then continues possession. Like his mm. ability in the air is absurd. Even if he's not scoring goals, he's still ridiculously fun to watch.
1: Yeah, definitely so. And he did have that shot, so I think, early on where he blasted it at the keeper as well. He could have could have easily got on the uh, score sheet in this. Game. Can we talk about Ooh. someone who did get on the score sheet, who revived yeah. himself? The glow-up is real. Emre Chan. Mm-hmm. What a goal! What a goal that was. Yep. My favourite thing about this goal isn't the technique. It isn't the way that Chan sort of got himself uh, going in, in his uh, Dortmund debut. It was uh, Julian Brandt's reaction. Have you seen it? No, he he puts his head on his he puts his hands on his head like something's gone really wrong. He's like, oh my god! And I couldn't figure <laughs> out because he you know he's a Leverkusen boy. Maybe he was like, oh, I scored again. I, I, did he did he get confused which side he was playing on for a second? Maybe I think that-, that
0: he was booed the entire game and had stuff thrown at him every time he tried to take a corner yeah. indicates that he was very aware of which team he was playing for in that one.
1: <laughs> Perhaps so. And you say <laughs> the, the, uh, the, um, the 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 D- Dortmund's first goal was from a Sancho corner. He was the only reason Sancho was taking the corners was because. Julian yep. Brandt was getting pelted with uh, stuff. I'm glad a,
0: you brought that up. Thank you. I wanted to give a quick thumbs up to uh, Jaden Sancho for that because he goes over and calls off Julian Brandt so he doesn't have to deal with the kind of abuse. Yeah. Not that they're any nicer to him. But then he hits the outswinger that is headed home uh, by Hummels to equalize. That's a great goal. To your point about Jean's goal, that's the one where Holland keeps possession alive and it ends in like a 13-pass move. Yeah. But I loved it because Jean obviously finishes it with a great uh, strike to the top corner, that bending ball. Ridiculous hit but he's also the one who keeps it going because it starts with Dortmund having a throw in and he sort of receives the ball plays it back receives it again is under a lot of pressure and just hits it all the way back to his center back but not in a like I don't have anything else to do I'm just gonna hit it back like sort of dull thing but it's definitely designed to recycle possession because as soon as he does that you can see him directing players and sprinting to get open and everybody else moves and it definitely feels much more pre-planned and programmed and then they move the ball around again then they find Holland who's now isolated then they counter-attack and it leads to an Emmerjan goal so I thought his play both in the strike that led to the goal but then also the kind of leadership and passing facilitation that he had uh, prior to the goal uh, not as impressive but still very impressive to me
1: definitely so and this was the uh, Borussia Dortmund team we've come to know and love really good going forward very exciting to watch but hopeless in the back and this was kind of the same story for both sides two very attacking sides here neither of whom could defend for toffee and Mm -hmm. i mean a couple of examples i bring up was i think kevin Volland's second goal where the Mm -hmm. ball comes to the back post from the middle and there's like zero marking going on in the box zero marking at all and leon bailey's goal for the that was a third goal Mm -hmm. wasn't it um yep there's another fallen pass that goes out right, and there's no marking at all. There's, there's four Borussia Dortmund defenders there. There's three attacking players. They're outnumbered. It shouldn't happen. But it's just, oh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's exciting. No, it's still exciting, uh, isn't it?
0: <laughs> it is. It is. But like, this is one where uh, I look forward to watching more Borussia Dortmund uh, in the next couple of weeks because I'm, I, I still don't know if this is Lucien Favre getting it right or maybe not quite preparing his team as good as he could have because they come out to back 3 Ashraf Hakimi is one of your more attack minded players uh, on the right side theoretically a right wing back but routinely as far forward as as like Holland on occasion uh he ended up playing right wing in like a 4231 when they inevitably changed their shape but i think him being so aggressive in attack is a thing he's being asked to do but then it pulls the center backs apart and it leaves gaps and you could just see Dortmund sort of consistently not realize that oh there's a ton of space out on our right side and given that they're planning to attack down there you would have expected them to kind of shift over to cover that a bit more so i thought hakimi was excellent and obviously his play uh for jaden sancho's goal i believe it was yeah. uh was Really, really impressive in the way he sort of like, no, no, excuse me, it was Guerrero's goal where he does the one two with Sancho, gets the ball back, very clearly decides, I'm going to play this ball wide for Guerrero to hit. And so he cuts it back inside, pulls the defenders to him, and that opens up even more space out wide to eventually play that ball wide. And that's why Guerrero is so wide open for that shot. So mm. Hakimi got massive thumbs up for me for his attacking play. But the sort of lack of defensive presence that resulted, I think, was also like uh, a massive part of why Dortmund looked so uh, hapless at the back. Yeah. Their maybe lack of pace didn't help them either. And then Kevin Volland, maybe just being Zach Efron, also didn't help.
1: <laughs> of course it did. And on that on that goal where you credit Hakimi the third goal, uh, mm-hmm. S- Sancho's sort of deep through ball there was lovely as well. Yeah. Very nice move in general. But this game, as fun as it was to watch and as fun as it, we, we can say Dortmund are to, to, mm-hmm. to see week in, week out, and we can blame them for not scoring five goals because that's what lost this game. They didn't score five. They needed five. And that's what they've been used to doing lately. But this just raised a lot of concerns for me. My primary concern is that, quite simply, Borussia Dortmund cannot win the league playing like this. And they won't win the league playing like this. No. Because, you know, they, this is a game where they dominated for much of the first half. And they still lost. You know, they they conceded two late goals, which which basically mm-hmm. got them the, the loss here. They're constantly leaving players unmarked in their own box, and they go forward so much that they're leaving so much space behind them. Championship-winning mm-hmm. teams don't play like that. That's the, that's the they message. do not.
0: And I, and I think for all of their firepower and electrifying play, and this is the team that I sort of uh, joked last week, like, y- you feel like they just intermittently do, like, little bumps of cocaine, and then they're like, okay, we're good to go again, and then they run a whole bunch. <laughs> if you sort of weather that storm, if you find a way through, and in this case, I have uh, thumbs up and credit to Peter Bosch, uh, head coach of Leverkusen for at halftime subbing off Bellarby because he was bad. He was very clearly the one who was not comfortable under pressure in possession. He kept giving the ball away. I think three or four times in the first 20 minutes, he gives the ball away at leads. The Dortmund attacks. Mm. Dortmund had clearly targeted him, were focused on him. They, they sub him off, and that really limited a lot of the kind of problems that uh, Dortmund were causing from then on. So I think, like, sort of, if you're a manager who can make a couple little on-the-fly adjustments to what Dortmund are doing, it sort of nullifies that threat, and then the vulnerability of their defense is there, and maybe even more so because in their frustration in their attempts to create more chances, they then send even, even more numbers forward and leave even more opportunities at the back. For sure. Tay-Tay, it's time to talk about Mm -hmm. the American. G.A. Ray. Yeah. I think we're going to have to talk about this one because, uh, as I said... Oh, boy. I'm going to try not to go too deep on this one. But, as I said... We were going to talk about a quicksand game uh, earlier in the show. We're going to talk about it now. Because if ever there were a quicksand game, this is it. And for people who don't know, this comes to me from The Replacements, the Keanu Reeves uh, lovely movie in which he says uh, that that is his biggest fear. Not like sinking into liquid sand, but the idea of you make a mistake. You don't know how to get out of it. You make another mistake. Then you're like really focused on the next play. I don't want to make a mistake. And if you're thinking I don't want to make a mistake, you're probably going to make a mistake. And Gio Reyna comes into this one at halftime. Julian Brandt comes off with an injury. You could see... Uh, especially as the first half was coming to a a close that Brent couldn't really complete passes with any accuracy. I'm guessing that meant he had sort of something wrong with his ankle when he tensed up to try to hit a ball. He just couldn't do it. So Reyna comes in and starts a little shaky. He's got a few rough passes. Then he dribbles to the end line. He gets a sort of squared ball back. I'm not sure if it was what he meant to do, but it ends up creating a good shooting opportunity for Dortmund. And you feel like, okay, like there it is. Like Maybe that's the moment. And then you start to see him get a little bit more creative on the ball. And then we think Jaden Sancho scores a goal. And it's really, really well done because I believe it's Dan Axel Zagadu fires a ball into the feet of Reyna. Reyna sort of turns under pressure with the ball coming at him, facilitates the attack going forward, gets involved. Jaden Sancho scores the goal and it feels like okay, here we go. Like he is gonna now kinda turn it on, he's gonna be this facilitating creative playmaker, he's gonna fill the role of Julian Brandt. And then the goal gets called back for VAR because Reina gets a bump from I believe uh was it Sven or Lars Bender? Do you remember? Uh Lars, I think. Okay. Uh, it, bas- it basically gets kind of bumped into. It's a deliberate bump by Bender, maybe annoyed by that turn that I just mentioned. And Randa grabs his arm, kind of pulls him across, throws him to the ground. Yeah. Uh, referee judges that Bender could have made a defensive play on Jaden Sancho, but wasn't able to do so. So the goal is chalked off. And from that moment on, you could just see Randa's conf- confidence gone that every single time from then on, he makes a few decent passes, but a lot of the time you can see him miss control, he gets knocked around a lot, he gets like a a slap in the face and then gets a bad foul, and I think the physicality combined with that mistake really led to a lack of confidence to the point where at the end of the game he gets a ball, like he tries to settle it and it goes kind of off of his neck and rolls insultingly out of bounds and Holland just screams at him that he had so much time and could have brought that ball down, and I think it was a lesson that this kid is a teenager and still has a decent amount of work left to do
1: definitely maybe we could throw him on the scrap pile with Harland for, for his performance in this game I, ju- <laughs> I just I mean I think you're completely right that was a turning point that Sancho goal that wasn't a goal which was very nice by the way and Hakimi doing some nice work in that build-up as well yeah. he deserves credit but I think they they kind of missed you it was a shame that Ulin had to go off in this game not yep. just because of uh, the pelters he was getting from the, mm-hmm. the Leverkusen fans but he-, he wasn't quite as well replaced as I'd hoped and I thought Maybe w- would it have been better to bring Thorgan Hazard on for him? He came on later, but maybe it wasn't quite the right substitution, and Reina wasn't quite what they needed
0: at that point in the game. But you know, he'll bounce back. He'll be fine. He will. He will, and he's very young. But I, but yes, I think you might be right because I don't know if this is what he the role he was playing midweek when he scores his goal in the Pokal as Dortmund were eliminated by Bremen. But when we saw him sub on uh, last weekend, we saw him come on for Holland, and he sort of led the line, played as kind of a false nine, dropped in, linked up play. Here he's coming on for Julian Brandt, who is playing as the number 10, is supposed to kind of link up and create and move. And I don't think Reina's game is built around speed. I don't think he's as quick in his movements as Julian Brandt. Certainly not as much as, uh, say, uh, Jaden Sancho or Leon Bailey. Uh, and so I think you're not going to get the kind of paciness out of him. So it requires him to be very... Calm on the ball and have good vision, and with the kind of nerves racked as they were or wrecked as they were, he's never going to have that confidence. He's never going to have that vision, and so I think his performance suffered as a result.
1: Yeah, definitely. And and for for all the credit that Borussia Dortmund deserve uh, in the past few weeks, Taylor, I've got to say this is the weekend where I think Bayern have won the league. Is that fair?
0: Yeah, it kind of felt that way, right? Because it felt like maybe if Leipzig get the win, maybe if Dortmund keep the pursuit on, now it's even tighter, it's even hotter. And instead, Bayern. I mean, for what we said, like uh, Leipzig came in with a game plan, should have probably gotten the win if they had taken their chance as well. Mm. So I think Bayern are probably going to feel like, all right, we got out of there with one point, no-no draw, uh, kept a clean sheet, and now we can sort of win out against weaker opposition, trust in Leipzig to drop points somewhere. And yeah, it feels like it maybe ends up going that way. I still have faith. I still have faith in Leipzig. I still have faith in maybe Dortmund will figure it out. Uh, but not that much faith, because this game, as soon as they went down Dortmund, you could just tell the frustration was there. They were getting annoyed with each other. There was a lot of kind of bickering and a lack of movement. And I've played in those games, certainly not at that level. But that game where, like, you can just tell that nobody is feeling it. You're not getting the -the off-the-ball movement you would have gotten if maybe people were in the mode, in the mood. And instead, they kind of resorted, uh, Dortmund did, says a little bit of cynical gamesmanship. Uh, Leon Bailey comes on. Leon Bailey, I believe, has had two different red cards this season has a bit of a temper, or at least has been identified as having a bit of a temper. Reyna has to pull him back, commit a professional foul, and then Emery Jean, as uh, Leon Bailey is protesting, Once Ryan like, kind of like rubs his head, and definitely is trying to wind him up and get him really <laughs> mad. And I just want to say thumbs up to Leon Bailey for, number one, not engaging at all, sort of recognizing what's happening, uh, but then literally two minutes later uh, scoring a goal. <laughs> that, I think, made the massive difference there. So I feel like Leon Bailey got his uh, revenge in the end, as Leverkusen got all three points.
1: Definitely. Us Baileys
0: know how how to react in these situations there so we go about that. there we go all right well let's uh let's talk a little bit about uh barca's reaction uh in their game against real batiz barcelona get the 3-2 win uh it was not as convincing as maybe some barcelona fans would have liked but i think this game could go a long way towards settling some of the fears around Kike setien uh ryan where are your thumbs on this game
1: Oh, let's let's give a thumb to Setien, then a thumb up. I should say to Setien okay. because it does seem like this team they're much more attractive now than they were previously, and it seems like yep. they're getting a bit more settled into Setien's modus operandi. And I'd be encouraged by the way things are going from this performance, even as you say, if it wasn't quite as convincing a win as uh, Barcelona fans would have hoped. But we should couch that in the fact that Betis usually give Barcelona a pretty good game. Mm. These two teams usually have a yeah. quite an entertaining one. Um, so my th- my thumbs also should go to leo messi here do you know that guy he's argentinian plays up front no. from barcelona
0: um, yeah, i feel like he might get some like uh some silverware this year like he d- he definitely deserves some awards i don't know if he's gotten enough of praise
1: well there's there's a video that uh, i saw espn put on twitter of him um providing assists for his kids like putting in crosses and uh, his kids putting in headers into this little guy. It's very cute. And he, put that, um, he transferred that skill onto the soccer field. He got three assists here. <laughs> so uh, he's the assist king in this game. Uh, he was really on it for this one. He had a couple of really good shots and a couple of moments where he looked like peak Leo Messi in the box. So that was really good yeah. to see. And obviously um, his set piece uh, work is, uh, uh, is up to scratch.
0: Yeah, weekend. a little bit. Uh, yeah, yeah. Barcelona scored two from set pieces, both delivered by Lionel Messi, as as Ryan said there. And I think if you watch the highlights of this. It feels like maybe he didn't have that good of a game because there's lots of misses. There's lots of moments when maybe you would expect him to shoot and he doesn't. But I think those highlights. It's why you got to watch the whole thing. Uh, those highlights sort of don't give you the full picture because you watch the way he linked up play. You watch the way he was calm on the ball. He didn't overreact when he did get plenty of fouls, which he did. And instead, you see him sort of facilitating and dropping in and being the veteran leader and veteran attacking player that Barcelona sort of desperately need with some of the injuries they have and some of the uh, the Experience they have that assist for Frankie de Jong's first goal oh. uh, when w- and worth noting Barcelona go one nil down uh, Langley judged a handball. Uh, it's an early penalty. I think in like the fourth minute. it is uh, Sergio Canales steps up Barcelona one nil down and Batiste to their credit, like had a game plan, frustrated Barcelona, didn't really let Barcelona get into any sort of rhythm, and it works, and Barca go 1-0 down that early. That could have been it. You really could have seen Barcelona crumble and get frustrated, and maybe Betis get one more. Instead, but, uh, it was the six-minute Canales uh, scores, yeah. and then basically Barcelona come right back down to the ninth minute. It's a beautiful weighted ball from Lionel Messi. Worth noting that it's Lay springing Frankie de Jong, who then plays to Messi, then plays back to Frankie de Jong. But... It looks, for all the world, like Frankie De Jong is what ten yards offside when he receives this ball, and you go back and watch, and he is probably five yards onside. It's just that well timed of a ball from Messi and that great of a run from De Jong to equalize and sort of change the uh, the narrative at that point. Because, as I said, it could have easily been one nil, two nil. Suddenly Barcelona's still struggling, and who knows what's going to happen. And instead, they end up getting the win.
1: There was so much Catalan goodness in that goal, Taylor. Not just not yes, just the was. Messi basically created a passing lane. There was no pass available there. He created it. He did a ball over the top, perfectly weighted, as perfectly weighted as he puts in crosses for Theo Messi in his own living room, as we've seen on Twitter. Um, And and De Jong's finish with chest down and and the volley was absolutely superb. But as you mentioned there, the highlight of that goal was Longley's pass out of the box Mm -hmm. to De Jong. And De Jong sprinting the length of the field to, to get into the box at the other end was excellent as well. But that pass, he cuts through... He cuts through three green shirts there. it's a really Durant, really risky decision. Lace. yeah long pass out yeah, of the box mm-hmm. and it's along yep. the floor and, and deong picks it up it's about 20 25 yards but it, it's it's such a it's almost a suicide pass the way it goes through these shirts but it's so perfectly timed and he pulls it off so brilliantly and i thought Longle had a good game here um and you mentioned he had he had a confusing game is what i'm gonna say <laughs> it was ups and downs ups and downs yeah. and one mm-hmm. of the downs being the fact that he didn't finish the game on the field exactly um, and can i can i say you mentioned earlier that the highlights don't show you everything in this game that's particularly true when those highlights are provided by B in sports because their highlights <laughs> didn't even show the two red cards <laughs> well how do you miss which, those there which two like- red cards in this
0: game <laughs> I understand. I feel like they have this some weird algorithm that's like if it's not a straight red, they don't think it's highlight worthy. But I think uh, certainly Long Lays is highlight worthy just because he had, uh, he concedes the penalty with the handball, but then uh, launches the counterattack for that first goal. I want to talk a little bit more about that one in a moment. Then scores the, the eventual winner, mm. then gets sent off for a fairly clumsy, unneeded challenge. I think you definitely could have shown that one. But the Nabil Fakir one, I don't know why they didn't show you because that was <laughs> just a moment of complete absurdity from him
1: fakir gets a thumbs up here he's had quite a game hasn't he basically wins a penalty gets a goal and gets sent off yeah yeah what a, uh, what a, what yeah. a combo clatters
0: into long lay who maybe maybe makes a little bit of a meal of it uh but gets the yellow card and then it was it was really fascinating to watch this was like one of the sequences i actually re-watched the most uh was fakir makes that challenge and I think because of the way it had started to get a little bit chippy or had been a little bit chippy, I think the referee decides, like, okay, maybe you weren't as aggressive. You weren't necessarily trying to hurt him, but you definitely went through after the ball was gone. You made contact. I'm gonna give this yellow. You see him give the yellow, you see fakir say something, and it is like a missile has locked onto Fakir. <laughs> the referee just follows behind him, and you can tell you can tell he's saying, like, what'd you say? What was that? And then Fakir just turns around and says one more thing, and referee like shows the same yellow card that he has not put away. Yeah. He gives the yellow, then follows behind him, yellow still in hand and waits and waits and hits him with another yellow and it's the red and it was a crazy moment that uh fakir will probably not be too thrilled about nor will his manager looking back
1: can i give a? will give a thumbs up to fakir though for this performance because it had Mm -hmm. everything as i say winning a penalty scoring a goal there was a rabona cross he put in that also wasn't Mm -hmm. in the highlights on Beard sports he did a rabona cross on on top of all this it was he was he, he was just so entertaining in this game it reminds you of what a good player it was it is Uh, If Mm -hmm. if his knees weren't made of glass, if he didn't have ACL issues, I think he'd be a much bigger team. I think he'd be having a much bigger impact because he always seems to do well against Barcelona. Didn't he score against them last time As all I seem
0: to remember? I believe so. But
1: he was was a constant threat. He was constantly forcing Barca to sort of bring him down with uh, cynical fouls. I was very impressed with him right up until he got the double yeah. yellow card wonderful stuff
0: I was really impressed with him because he seemed to be alive to the fact that Barcelona were a little bit out of it out of sorts in the first 20 minutes or so um, because he as you said creates the the penalty by shooting uh, it hits Langley's hand and the penalty is conceded but he has like three Barcelona players around him that he somehow is able to evade because I think none of them want to commit a foul but none of them really want to commit all that much to the kind of physical defending that's necessary in that moment and then for his goal the second goal for Batiste it's Umtiti kind of standing off and it is uh, Junior Firpo not oh no Junior Firpo uh, gives the ball away or gives the ball to Vidal who gives the ball away it's Semedo who doesn't close down at all Semedo's kind of jogging behind Fakir Umtiti's dropping off and dropping off and dropping off and neither one ever really puts pressure on and then he's able to score really unmolested and it felt to me like you're seeing some of the vulnerability of the replacement Barcelona players no Pique no Jordi Alba in the starting 11 um and really, that sort of frailty was on display. And that's why I think Long Le's performance stands out all the more to me. Yeah. And in the end, why i probably go thumbs up for him, even though he gets sent off, even though he concedes that penalty, because... As you said, that pass splits three players, but there is nothing else on. Batiste set up in such a way to really limit options. I kept trying to count their numbers again because they were essentially defending in like a mid-high block 4-4-2. But at times I was like, do they have six midfielders? How are they doing this? They were just everywhere, and Barca could not play out. It was this really suffocating defense. And it speaks to the quality of Longley and Frankie de Jong and Lionel Messi. that, But if you give them that one yard where maybe they can play that ball, even if it's incredibly risky, they will be able to usually pull it off, and that usually then leads to a good attacking chance, and in this case, leads to that first goal. So I think Barcelona's ability to sort of find a way through and back themselves to play through against a team that was very disciplined, very defensively organized, caused lots of problems... And they were still able to get all three points, Barcelona. You have to see that as a positive step, at least a step in the right direction, even if some question marks remain.
1: I agree. And yeah, just to go back to the Longley thing, that pass, and nothing else being on, 90% of centre backs would have hoofed it at that point. And I yep. think that's what made that was the difference there. And I'll go, going back to that goal, Fakir's goal. I think you, you mentioned a few players that blame there. Untiti um, for me was the one who just didn't put enough pressure on. Yep. He, he, yeah, he was going too back, uh, too far back on that one. And Vidal, I believe it was Vidal who gave the ball away in the center circle to start that move. Um, under but,
0: under very little pressure. Yes, also, yeah. So <laughs> just he, he didn't he, he, he
1: didn't have a great game. Actually, he was a, he yeah. had a poor game. I'd say in general. But can I, I, I was unfair, I was not unfair, I was balanced about being Sports's highlights package. Can I give, uh, can I give Ray Hudson a thumbs up for some of his descriptions of the goals? Uh, for, for, for Sergio Canales' penalty, he was cool as a Paula Beer's toenails. And when, uh, when the, the De Jong finish came in, the assist from Messi was softer than the clap of a butterfly's wings, which I liked a lot. And my favourite was Fakir's goal. Um, he, he needs help in that situation like a shark needs a dentist. Love it. <laughs>
0: Oh, I just want to know. Does he, he have he, those written down? He he must. I feel like, and <laughs> I also wonder. Cooler than a polar toenails. Maybe is just a common saying, but I definitely first heard that from Outcast. I definitely heard Andre three thousand rap that at one point. Oh, really? And I maybe. And I now like to think that Ray Hudson is just constantly listening to Outcast and writing down their similes and metaphors <laughs> to reuse to describe Lionel Messi in Barcelona. <laughs> I hope so, I hope so, because I... I, Is it? I think it's Andre. It might be Big Boy, but I I have a feeling it's somebody from OutKast. That
1: was new on me, but it sounded wonderful. It's very poetic. I enjoyed that a lot.
0: (laughs) Also, that's a phenomenal Ray Hudson impression. I just want to throw that out there. You hear a lot of impressions. It doesn't always come across. That was pretty good, Ray. Thank you. You got them skills. You got them skills. Maybe you have the skills enough to uh, get a Premier League Netflix deal. Let's talk about the Premier League for a moment. Our one bit of news from the Premier League this weekend was uh, a story reported by The Athletic. Uh, I'm trying to find the name Matt Slater for The Athletic, uh, reporting that the Premier League chief executive Richard Masters has admitted it is inevitable that England's top flight will launch a Netflix style streaming service in the coming years. The league currently sells its media rights to traditional broadcasters in return for upfront payments. These packages of rights are agreed uh, in three or six year cycles. Uh, uh... I think the 2019 through 2022 package brings in about $3 billion, but their estimates are that if they opted for their own streaming package with, with a subscription service, a monthly subscription service, their estimates are they could raise uh, £24 billion, which is more than $3 billion. I don't know a if lot you do more. that, Ryan.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. quite a lot more. If you, if you mm-hmm. work out the maths on that, it's a lot more. And yeah, the, the basic crux <laughs> of that argument is that, you know, cut out the middleman of the traditional broadcasters and uh, you can charge less to the consumer in theory and, and get more money for the Premier League, which is what we're all here for getting more money for the premier league i mean that's course. the dream yeah now but looking at how this package i mean they, they gave the example of singapore was mm-hmm. might be one of the test markets and how they yep. can make like an extra hundred million on the spot uh, uh, per year by by changing to this model in singapore but i was thinking about how they do it in in the u.s and would we lose like production values Well, we would lose production values from something like nbc so we'd lose that mm-hmm. but also the the model they're talking about they're tra- talking about charging around ten pounds a month around fifteen dollars a month and right. for what you get it sounds terribly similar to what we get already with the NBC mm-hmm. Gold package and more expensive so I'm not sure for a US audience this is something to be super excited about because my yeah. first reaction was this is great I can cut the cord and you know just go on my apps was is wonderful.
0: I think NBC Sports maybe shot themselves in the foot a little bit. I understand they've got to monetize, but introducing NBC Sports gold, I think that maybe makes this move or this potential move seem less dramatic to American uh, fans because now with NBC Sports having the sort of pay model where you do have to subscribe to the app to get certain replays or get certain matches, if it went from what it used to be, which is kind of everything was available and everything was free, and then suddenly you were having to pay a subscription service, I think you'd get a lot more response, a lot more negative coverage of this. But because you sort of already have a little bit of that kind of uh, pay-to-watch model, maybe it's less dramatic, but it did feel... I feel like maybe it got a little bit of negative reaction uh, immediately from American fans. But for people in England, where Daryl constantly tells me you do not have the ability to watch all the games that we can watch here, do you think this would be a very well-received uh, move? Yeah, I think they'd love
1: it. I think there's a lot of people saying, like, I could just, if they did, like, a pick-and-mix package where you could just watch your team's games, mm-hmm. people would be so receptive to that because we get so we can watch all the games here. We take that yep. for granted. And, you know, you can't watch any 3 p.m., 10 a.m. Eastern kickoffs uh, back at home. There's a, there's a blackout for those. Um, and to, to be able to have the freedom to watch any other game at any other time, I presume they would still be blacked out those 3pm games. That that's a huge boon for the UK consumer. That that would be great. And there's, you know they've had a sort of taste of that when Amazon Prime did um, the, the the round of games a, a few weeks ago. So that there's mm-hmm. there's kind of a taste for that already happening in the UK. So I, I don't know. I, I I think it could be a good deal all around. But one thing that did get me thinking about is that it could affect kickoff times in general. Because if there's no broadcaster dictating when games start, then it's the league and the clubs who are doing it. So if the teams want to avoid that 3pm blackout and have their games always broadcast all around the UK, Uh then maybe Premier League League clubs don't kick off at 3pm anymore. And that might not be a bad thing. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that happens anyway, because then that 3pm slot could be for the lower leagues and it could mm-hmm. mean that the Premier League doesn't cannibalise their audience as much, arguably. So I could see that happening anyway, but it could kind of change the shape of the way we watch the game a little bit, I think.
0: Uh, yeah, I think there are two obstacles that I see to this uh, happening. The first is the clubs themselves. Um, that article continued on that basically, I think Singtel, uh, like Singapore, you mentioned, could be the like the the guinea pig, the test case for this. Uh, Singtel have a seventy million, uh, I think, pound per year deal, or the total deal is seventy million. And I think for a lot of clubs, they're looking at that and saying, yeah, we'd rather just have the guaranteed income up front versus the potential of getting more in subscriptions. And I think yeah. if you're a Premier League owner or a front office executive you're going to see a big number guaranteed versus a potential big number from a lot of small numbers that theoretically could happen over time. And I think that will take some convincing. And the second reason why I think it might be a little bit difficult for the Premier League is because one of the people who's doing the convincing, um, like there's four clubs, I think, whose their chief executives are the sort of organizing members and the ones who are sort of driving this forward. Uh, Man City are involved, but the one that kind of stood out to me was Manchester United, which means it's Ed Woodward. Very good on the commercial side, but uh, tends to hesitate the trigger, So you've got to get Ed Woodward going uh, to make this happen, and we'll see if they're able to do that. Do you think they will? I, I think as much as I dislike Ed Woodward from a like soccer standpoint, he's very good at the commercial side and I think is very savvy in terms of how to make money. It's why he still has a job. It's why he has a job in the first place. So uh, I think he is probably well-positioned to do it. I think my, my frustration more so is born of the fact that he is still apparently in charge of making all the transfers for the <laughs> club that I support. So now he's going to be negotiating... Uh, I guess streaming rights for every single club in the Premier League, I don't think that will help his focus on the club that isn't playing particularly well right now.
1: That is very true. But, hey, it benefits all of us and it keeps us laughing at you, so it's fine.
0: Hey, that's the goal. That's the goal. Well, that also seems like a perfect point to end on with Ryan Bailey laughing at my misfortune. Ryan Bailey, thank you for laughing at me and talking about uh, the games that we talked about this weekend.
1: I love you, Taylor. Always a pleasure. Never a chore. (laughs)
0: Love you too, buddy. So thank you to Ryan Bailey, as always, for taking all the time to break down all the action from this weekend, or at least the action that we watched from this weekend. Normally, you'd be hearing the exit music. The show would be over. But we've got another segment to do. And uh, to do that segment, I have Daryl Grove on the line. Hello, Daryl. Hello. That was the exit music. It was well done. That was nicely done. Daryl is in the office. I am not in the office. I am at home. So Daryl made the journey in. I chose not to.
2: Yeah, this is all backwards, right? I'm like guesting on my own show, but I'm in the studio.
0: Yep. Uh, there was construction outside today. I was debating whether or not I wanted to record from home in the office. I walked outside. They were doing a bunch of construction. My road was closed. And I said, nah, I'm staying home. And here I am. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair yes. Enough. Uh, but you and I are going to break down uh, the U.S. women's national team's 3-0 win over Canada. Uh, they've qualified for the Olympics. they won Olympic qualifying. We're going to talk about that. But first, we're going to talk about today's sponsor. It's a new sponsor, Daryl Grove. Who is this new sponsor? Tell us all about them.
2: It's DoorDash. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a service that delivers a door to you if you break your door and they deliver it in a hurry, but it's not. DoorDash is a food delivery service that has something for every lifestyle.
0: Much like Instagram was initially like a, I think like a location services app that pivoted to photography. I hope that DoorDash was a door delivery service that pivoted to (laughs) delivering food to your door instead, because that seems both more useful and more lucrative. Yeah, I
2: imagine they delivered a door and they were like, oh, I'm kind of hungry. Could you just like pick up some food along the way? And then it just grew from there.
0: It just grew from there. Plus, I believe I'm correct in saying that people need to eat multiple times a day. You only really need the one door. So as soon as you get the one door, you're pretty much good. (laughs) So it does feel like a smart business model for them to go for. And it is the case that they will bring food uh, directly to your door. That could be from your favorite pizza joint. It could be from really anything because there are over 310,000 restaurant partners in 4,000 cities. So you might be able to find your favorite you might be able to find your new favorite as well
2: because delivery is more than just pizza in 2020 it's basically any food you can think of um, most restaurants partner with DoorDash so they can get the food from the restaurant to your door in a dash
0: in a dash they do it on a hustle uh, door-to-door delivery in all 50 u.s states puerto rico canada australia so they're even included even- canada you can you can uh drench your caloric sadness uh from losing to the united states by feasting <laughs> on whatever food you might need I'm also impressed that they deliver to the non-contiguous states.
2: They normally get left out, right?
0: Exactly. The US have to say that quickly. Like all 48 it. states. <laughs> like just kind of got to mutter that one in. Uh, but instead, you can, as I said, choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick Fil A, Cheesecake Factory. But they've got uh, local ones. I have used it to uh, get food from our preferred Mexican uh, restaurant that is directly across the street from TSS Tower. But can if you, you don't remember don't- the name. Uh no, I, I, I on the moment I'm panicking and I want to say their sister restaurant Lalo's Cocina. Uh, what is it, Chicanos Cocina? Yes, haha, is. I got there. Uh, but yes, <laughs> uh, if I don't feel like going into the office to then get the Mexican food, I can just have it delivered to my temporary office, which is my desk at home. Lovely. Uh, <laughs> right
2: now, our listeners can get five dollars off their first order of fifteen dollars or more if you download the DoorDash app and enter the code TSS.
0: That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and use the code TSS. Don't forget, that's code TSS for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. I appreciate the DoorDash copy because they adhere to the rule of threes. (laughs) They do indeed. I appreciate DoorDash for sponsoring today's episode. So thank you to them for that. I I do enjoy that. I just had my Billy on the street moment. There's the famous clip of him (laughs) going up to a woman and saying, name a woman and she cannot do it. (laughs) And I feel like naming the restaurant that I eat at all the time or failing to name it was was a crisis moment for me.
2: (laughs) The correct answer is Renny (laughs) Zellweger.
0: Uh, Academy Award winner again?
2: Has she won two? Yep. I don't know. She's won the one. We know that for sure. Uh, Definitely won, yeah.
0: I might be blaming her with Reese Reese Witherspoon. That's a possibility. (laughs) Uh, Let's not do that. Let's instead talk about the U.S. Women's National Team, their 3-0 win over Canada, a win that was maybe... Flattering in terms of the scoreline. When you see 3 yeah. 0, you expect a big result. Instead, it was a tight affair through the first 45 minutes. The U.S. makes some changes at halftime, or at least that's my view of it, and they end up winning 3 0. Daryl, you watched the entirety of this game. I'm going to say I watched about 70% of this game. So let's break it down. Uh, what did you make of the result? Not necessarily the 3 0 scoreline, but the way the United States went about making it happen.
2: Okay, yeah. So first of all, it's an enjoyable game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's worth noting. If you were on the fence about whether to watch this or not, maybe it's sitting on your DVR. I would say watch it. This was mm-hmm. a this was a good game. Um, this was Vlatko in a competitive game against a good opponent. For the first time, mm-hmm. right? So that that alone made it interesting. Um, but then the other really interesting thing is, if you think to our conversation with Kate Margraf, mm-hmm. uh, general manager of the US Women's National Team, among other roles, we, as we've learned, um, she said that part of when they hired Vlatko, part of his job is to win now, but also develop for the future, which is seemingly a paradoxical, impossible task. <laughs> um, but, right. But this game was the perfect opportunity to do so yep. because it was the um, it was the final of the Olympic CONCACAF qualifying tournament. It's a
0: tough thing to categorize, right? Because it's like it's the yes. final, but it's qualifying. We've already qualified, but we're winning qualifying. We are so the champions it. of yeah. qualifying.
2: So, yeah, the U.S. had already qualified by beating Mexico 4-0 in the semifinal. Mm-hmm. And the lineup that Vlatko picked to play against Mexico in that semi-final, I would argue, was his strongest lineup. Uh, Not least because it's almost identical to the Women's World Cup final Mm -hmm. lineup that Jill Ellis used. Um, He
0: controversially chose not to start Alex Morgan in this game.
2: Yeah, seven months pregnant Alex (laughs) Morgan,
0: right? So Carly Lloyd um,
2: in at centre forward, otherwise exactly the same. Um, I think if this was Jill Ellis, she would have gone with the same um, definitely preferred best 11 lineup for the final against Canada. And I know that because that's exactly what she did in 2016. I was going to ask, you Um, don't have a precedent for that, do you? I sure do. Yeah, I look back. She picked the same lineup for the semifinal that you actually qualifies you for the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And then the final when you have to try and beat Canada, which, by the way, is the pattern of this tournament. (laughs) the last several, several times out. Um, But Vlatko, I think it's the perfect opportunity for him, right? Because it's, again, tough opponent. There's um, there's a trophy on the line. But also, if you lose, it's kind of okay because you've already qualified for the Olympics. And so he picked a somewhat experimental lineup Mm -hmm. and sent them out to face Canada. And that, to me, is what was really interesting about this game.
0: So it was Was it the experimental lineup itself, or was it the way the United States came out in that first half? Because to my eyes, it looked like they were a bit more conservative in their approach. It seemed like they were willing to let Canada have the ball, have possession around midfield, and the United States maybe sat off a little bit more than I am accustomed to seeing. But I don't know if that's just because those are the moments I focused in on. So I'm wondering what your takeaway was about that first half.
2: Well, here's my take. is When you have Alex Morgan at centre-forward or you have Carly Lloyd at centre-forward, You've got kind of um, someone who will be a at and mm-hmm. will sort of receive the ball with their back to goal and hold it up and you build from there. Right. Um, with the front three that Vlatko picked, it's what sort of Kristen Press on the left, Lynn Williams at centre forward and Jess McDonald at right wing. And um, that's three very fast players at front. Right. Mm-hmm. And to me, the U.S. seem to be trying to just like chip balls in behind for all three strikers to run onto. And Canada were wise to it, basically. Buchanan's a really good defender, Mm. and they managed to clean it up almost every time that those balls went through. And I think that's why Canada had so much of the ball, because the US would essentially... Give it back to them by trying to clip these balls through for the three forwards to run onto.
0: Yeah, and so I, it almost reminded me—I'm like, going to use FIFA to explain a soccer game, but so be it. Of like, it was like tense in the midfield, and so when Canada would get some chances, there were moments when like Christine Sinclair gets thrown a breakaway; it's a good save from Alyssa nair But for the most yeah. part, I felt like it was Canada sort of moving and moving and moving, and then eventually sort of dumping the ball in themselves. The United States would usually be able to clear the ball, sometimes not. Looking in your direction, Ali Krieger. Uh, but yeah, I want to sta-
2: talk about that later, by the way. That's fine that with That me. was one of most interesting things going on
0: but so the u.s would then sort of it felt like instead of re-establishing possession and then kind of doing quick passing interchanges to get into the attack i take your point it felt like they were just sort of like "Uh uh-uh and like loop loop it long back the other way and so it was a very sort of tense physical kicking it long getting into kind of 50 50 challenges more routinely than i would have expected
2: the other thing i saw was um i don't know if it's because they'd like if they gave up on the ball in behind her, it wasn't on. I would see at least three or four times I saw Crystal Dunn from left back just send in a big, long diagonal cross from deep looking for the head of Jess McDonald at the far post. Right, And it got me thinking that maybe this is like a Vlatko pattern of play that he's thinking, okay, Jess McDonald, she's a striker really, right? But we're playing her on the wing. And the idea is that she can win headers at the far post and put it back across goal and I think that's what they were going for Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, yeah I mean I think the United States were looking for those those big balls and sort of big switches of play not just because Jess McDonald is very good in the air and can win those but I think also because Canada applied the sort of counter pressure they were quick to as soon as they lost the ball try to regain it especially in the first half put the U.S. under pressure and so I almost wonder if part of that long ball strategy from the U.S. was sort of being unfamiliar with that level of pressure at least since maybe like the World Cup and instead sort of looking to alleviate it by some of those big switches to uh, put their teammates into space or find their teammates in space, but also get away from that immediate press from Canada.
2: But did you, you, I don't disagree with that, but did you share my sort of disappointment with that? Because I sat down to watch this game really thinking that the US would have A lot of possession and they would sort of move the ball around on the floor and find the spaces to like get the strikers in behind and like as a good example I saw Rose Lavelle who we were texting about um during the the Mexico semi-final right Mm -hmm. um and I think we posted on Twitter like maybe Rose Lavelle's the best player in the world right now twice in the first three minutes Rose Lavelle was just knocked off the ball as she was trying to do a spin turn yep and I think that was a that was a, a wake up call to me of, oh, the U.S. can't just play nice football the whole time against this Canada team. We'll we'll get wrecked.
0: Yeah. I mean, so, so then why were you sort of like uh, disappointed by that? If it felt like Canada was kind of hitting the United States being physical, was it just that, oh, yeah. they're not this unstoppable juggernaut, even yeah. though they kind I- of ended up being that?
2: So, I think it's that I want the best of both worlds. Uh-huh. I want my cake and I want to eat it as well, right? Yeah. I want the US to be an unstoppable juggernaut, but I want them to play like pretty passing football with lots of tricks and flicks. And it, it turns out you can't, you really can't do both when you're sort of at a reasonably similar level to your opponent. You can do it against Mexico, do it against Costa Rica, but you can't do it against Canada.
0: First of all, way to use, eat your cake and have it too uh, roughly the correct way. Uh, Ted Kaczynski <laughs> would definitely appreciate that. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I take your point, but I also think it made me then enjoy the second half more because it almost felt like the United States sort of weren't necessarily prepared for the physicality and the kind of intense pressing from Canada. And so instead, I think maybe they retreated a little bit, sat in, chose to be a bit defensive, chose to not let uh, Canada through, make some adjustments at halftime. And then I did feel like the U.S., up their game in terms of the kind of quick combination play on a couple of occasions, but also maybe up the physicality a lot. I feel like Lindsay Horan was kind of routinely just sort of like, I will knock you off the ball and then I will be technical on the ball. But if you yeah. want to go physical, I will go physical right back.
2: I mean, that's kind of the uh, the build up to, uh, to one of the goals, right? Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I mean I was, yes, yeah, I, I think so. You're talking about Horan's uh, goal itself, or maybe even the third goal. I think it's it, the yeah. third goal starts with mm-hmm.
2: a, Haran, a big Horan tackle on Fleming. And Fleming yeah. is like the, you know, like tricky, I can move the ball and keep you away player. But Horan's like, no, I'm yeah. taking that. And, and I want to. <laughs> so I'm, I'm interested, Taylor. What, what did you see as the halftime adjustments?
0: Um, I think it was just that the United States didn't sit off as much. I think like they then embroached, uh, <laughs> embroached I think is what I just said. Uh, <laughs> they approached the second half with more of, well, well then we're going to counter your press with our own press. And so I think I the United it. States, rather than kind of giving Canada and Canada center backs the ball around midfield, it felt like they kind of went for them a little bit more. They would pick their moments, but then they would sort of pounce in packs and cause problems. And I think that flustered Canada a lot and made them maybe slow down a little bit more whereas I think the United States was maybe struggling with a little bit of the way Canada was possessing but as soon as you're putting them under pressure they take a few extra touches maybe they're less aggressive they're less adventurous with the ball and then I think you can start to kind of implement your game more and more I think it starts from halftime when they uh, change up a little bit but still go the United States direct straight from kickoff I think that was maybe a sign of their intent and from From the opening kick of that second half, it felt like much more kind of what we've seen from the United States of being physical, but then being calm on the ball, taking their opportunities, and in the end, they get the 3-0. And,
2: yeah, you kind of just described the first goal, right? So the deadlock is broken in the 60th minute. It's Crystal Dunn plays a ball down the line to uh, to Lynn Williams. Mm-hmm. And Williams gets tackled, right, as she's trying to cut in from the left. Um, she gets tackled by Riviere. But then it's when Riviere tries to play a pass into midfield, Williams is on it, counter-press, with the ball back. And then that's where the opportunity to sort of dribble in and smash it top corner comes from.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's not that important of a distinction, but I would say, just worth noting, because I guess I want to be harsh on Riviere, she tries to like both cut it out and pass in the same motion with the outside of her yeah. right foot. And instead just sort of sets it up for Lynn Williams to be like, oh, Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> and then she yeah. smashes that one about as hard as you could possibly hit it. But I think, A very nice finish. Yeah, but I think I think that sort of directness and that willing to take people on from Lynn Williams, and it's something we saw from Lindsay Horan at the end of the first half. She wrote a few challenges and turned under pressure. And I think that was something the United States maybe wasn't doing as much of. And you need that player to just be like, all right, fine, I'm going to make something happen. And it really is Lynn Williams sort of going at the defense, causing some problems, creating some uh, discomfort from the defenders, and then forcing yeah. that turnover that leads to the goal. And she is involved in every single sure goal. Is. So if you'll
2: permit me, I'd love to talk about the second goal. Mm-hmm. It's in the 71st minute. It is a big cross from Sam Mewis. Yep. Um, it, went, I, it went up to the moon and came back down again. Um, Moonball, baby. Moonball. <laughs> and then so from the left wing, that big cross from Mewis. And then Williams does what I think they were trying to get Jess McDonald to do mm-hmm. um, it, in the first half. Williams just nods it down really kind of gently and perfectly into yeah. the path of Lindsay Horan. And all it takes is that one clever touch from Horan. It's kind of like a, a Zidane-ish touch, right? Mm-hmm. To just like, uh, just lift the ball over the defender and then find the, the bottom corner. So uh, Lindsey Zidane is what I'm calling her for that goal. <laughs>
0: It's, I mean, it's really, it's one of those, like, goals where sometimes the ball not being crushed into the back of the net, but sort of delicately rolling in off the post is almost as appealing. And in this case, yeah, when Lynn Williams heads it back across, Haran, I think, chests it down with, like, her lower stomach, but then has that little touch just to kind of lift it over the defender and then hits it. And it's three deft touches that leads to the goal. But it's the sort of... Uh, It's why I really enjoyed Lindsay Horan so much. It's why when you asked that Rose Lavelle question about is she the best player in the world, I think you got a few other players nominated, but the one that I felt like was most consistently nominated, most people seem to agree, but the one that was most consistently nominated aside from Rose Lavelle was Lindsay Horan. And I think this performance is why she still gets that sort of hype and justifies it.
2: And again, this is part of the um, this slightly experimental nature of the Vlatko lineup, right? Like Lindsay Hiran is the one that often missed out mm-hmm. when Jalelis was picking uh, a three-player midfield, and Lynn Williams, correct me if I'm wrong, did not even go to the World Cup. So this is this is new, and it's these two combining for a goal. I've got one question before we move on, though, Taylor. When you say that Hiran controlled the ball with her lower stomach, yeah. do you mean her appendix or her abdomen?
0: Uh, her abdomen.
2: There we go. Okay. Where is her appendix? Your appendix is like your extra stomach that you don't actually use.
0: But where is it? See, I'm always nervous. Anytime I get an acute pain in my stomach, I'm like, I've got appendicitis. I just instantly <laughs> think that. But I never quite know where the appendix is.
2: I, I don't know if it's in your left or your right side. Um, mm-hmm. For for reasons unrelated to this game, I've spent a lot of time looking at diagrams of
0: the inner workings of my stomach in the oh. last few months. Okay. Um, and I still don't know where the appendix is. You say unrelated to this game. I'm not sure I believe you. I feel like you were so focused on which body part Lindsay Horan used to settle this ball that you had like the, the full mannequin in front of you trying to figure it all out. <laughs> well, let's move on to that 82nd, <laughs> if 87th minute.
2: Mm-hmm. Megan Rapinoe, she's on the field. Um, she gets herself a goal. She does. But as I said earlier, though, it starts with that Lindsay Horan tackle mm-hmm. um, on Jess Fleming as Fleming is trying to make a turn. Yep. and I think that's, uh, again, part of what Horan
0: brings to the game, right? It, it is, but I think the, it's And it's great it's a great tackle from Moran. It's a great driving run and ball in from Lynn Williams. But where you see the kind of veteran nous, I believe is the way uh, you go with it, uh, is Megan Rapino, who if you watch as Lindsay Horan is closing in to make that tackle, Megan Rapino is already shifting her weight towards making a counterattacking run. Like She there sort of go. knows, like, Lindsay's going to win this ball. Uh, then, uh, then Lynn Williams is going to get it. She'll play me in. It's going to be a goal. So I'm just going to go ahead and start my run now. And she pretty much does. And that's pretty <laughs> much how that goes down.
2: Did you also? I know we've uh, harped on this before, mm-hmm. but I again noticed a massive uptick in the quality um, of sort of weighted through balls yep. and crosses that find the exact target. Um, Megan Rapinoe really is even amongst this elite group of US Women's National Team players. Her passing and crossing is elite, elite. I like think yes. the like double
0: elite. <laughs> double elite. She would,
2: if it was an airplane, she would definitely board first out of everybody. Yeah, I'd be fine with that. I'd be fine with that.
0: Yeah, uh, yes. I thought she was excellent. I thought Sam is coming on as a substitute also uh, pretty excellent, though she does not get yeah. the goal. Megan Rapinoe does. And it's a good, it's not just the run. It's not just her delivery. But in this case, it's also just the finish. It's kind of rifled in, but she picks her spot. She knows where she's going. She's calm. Then she does the Rapinoe yeah. celebration. It kind of uh, kind of did everything you needed to do.
2: Do you mind if we talk a little bit about sort of who impressed and who might have strengthened their case for being part of the actual first team starting eleven? lineup? I sure don't. Um, so I think the winner really is Lynn Williams, right? Um, mm-hmm. involved in three goals and four assists
0: in qualifying. And, uh, I think three goals as well, uh, for Lynn there Williams, not bad.
2: Um, so she, she, to me as that center forward, she is now in contest with Carly Lloyd while Alex Morgan is out. Mm-hmm.
0: What about, uh, I agree with that, but what about Kristen Press, who we also saw sort of play central uh, a couple of different times in this game. There was some rotation going on. But yeah, she has I like some-
2: that, by the way. I like the uh, Press and Williams switching back and yep. forth. I think it like did a little bit of confusing the Canadian defense, right? Because mm. Buchanan yeah. was watching everything, but she couldn't always watch that.
0: She could not. Uh, And I felt like Press, uh, despite not getting her name on the score sheet, she she certainly caused lots of problems. Maybe there was a few times when she could have looked to to pass instead of shooting, but she has the nice one of the 33rd minute when she hits the crossbar. Worth noting that comes from Lindsay Haran again, sort of making the decision to drive forward and make something happen. But it's still a, a good shot from her. And Kristen Press was another one who I think came out of this camp uh, a winner and probably played herself if she wasn't already on the roster, probably played herself into certainly uh, strong contention, if not outright selection.
2: So here's my take on Kristen Press is even though she really is a striker, yeah. right, she's a pacey running behind run at players facing goal striker. And she's not a back to goal striker, almost not at all, right? I don't think she can do that job. She's not a target. like no. She's not big enough to be a target for crosses. And she's not, I don't think, you know, there's a lot of Christian Press soccer that I haven't seen, so I could be wrong. But I don't think she's like a back-to-goal hold-up type striker. So in this three-forward system, she, for me, she kind of has to play left wing. She can't be the replacement center forward. So she's still in competition with Megan Rapinoe. And I think if she's going to win a starting spot, it'll be because Rapino declines or is injured or she's just the backup to Rapino. I don't think she can be a replacement for the actual centre forward, which is what I think Lynn Williams does offer.
0: I think that's a really good shout. I, I I kind of overlooked Megan Rapinoe, strangely enough. Just because Christian Press started this last game, maybe it's the recency bias. Yeah. Uh, but and yeah for I, example,
2: R- Rapinoe started the must-win to qualify yeah. semifinal. It was Rapinoe on the left,
0: um, Heath on the right, and uh, Carly Lloyd center forward. So, So then do you think maybe I'm – am I being – Like, Christian Press is an excellent player, but do you feel like am I being too positive then, given the kind of uh the lack of depth that they're gonna have at the Olympics just because you have a smaller roster? Do you think then that maybe Christian Press does miss out? Or do you think she has enough versatility that they may bring her to be a substitute for Rapino or a substitute for Heath? And then you could have maybe Lynn Williams as a backup there option as well, but then also a backup striker for, say, Carly Wood?
2: Honestly, I'm not confident answering because I'm not sure how mm-hmm. many strikers we normally take on that 18-player roster. Um, she's versatile enough, right? You can make the argument that she can play she can play any of those front three positions. But when she's the center forward, you, to me, you miss out on the hold-up play. Yeah. So maybe like it comes down to Kristen Press or Mallory Pugh. Because in, in some ways, they're kind of similar in that they're better out wide and running at people. So maybe it just depends who's in form at that time, right? And we've got the She Believes Cup in March to uh, to judge a few players against
0: each other. We certainly do. We certainly do. Yeah. Well, are there players who you have maybe more question marks about uh, at this point than you did uh, heading into the camp?
2: Um, maybe Jess McDonald mm-hmm. because she didn't have a great tournament. And you really would expect a player like McDonald to, you know, fill her boots during CONCACAF um, uh, Olympic qualifying um, and certainly, if you were looking at which strikers made uh, larger progress, it's definitely Lynn Williams over Jess McDonald, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also really fascinated by this Ali Krieger at centre back <laughs> experiment.
0: I feel like you chose the word fascinated intentionally.
2: Well, here's why it's really here's why it's really weird is Emily Sonnett played yeah. right back in this game. Mm-hmm. I think of, again, I, I'm not as experienced an NDOSL watcher as many people who will be talking about this game. So I know that I'm lacking certain knowledge. But to me, Emily Sonnet is a centre back, right? And when she plays right back, um, I mean this in a good way. She looks like a centre back playing right back. <laughs> um, especially, like, yeah. you know, towards the end of the game, she was just kind of wrecking people a few times yep. and like stopping counter attacks with fouls mm-hmm. in a way that proper, proper defenders do. Yeah, she I kind of loved it, but she definitely looked like an all out defender as opposed to like a. Um, Uh, Like a Lucy Bruns attacking right back.
0: Yeah, two things there. I would say when you asked me earlier, like, what do I think was different or what did I notice that was noticeably different? Like the United States just being so much more aggressive in when they tried to put Canada under pressure was exemplified by Emily Sonnet in the 47th minute, I think. was she like steps out and crushes somebody to make that tackle. And it felt like, okay, I see what you're doing. But to your point about her being a center back playing right back, there was the moment of the first half I think it was the first, no, second half. Excuse me, when she gets uh, sniped, for lack of a better way, and just like falls over, <laughs> standing there. That wasn't maybe her I finest moment.
2: I re- so luckily there was no play near her, right? No. So it didn't it didn't impact anything? But I kind of like how she rolled, popped back up, and yeah. just gave her thumbs up to the bench, like I'm fine. Let's yes. keep going. And got a big and got a
0: big <laughs> cheer for it. I think she's she's yeah. a fan favorite. But it was <laughs> but,
2: so yeah. This but this is why I think it's weird is Emily Sonnet is a centre back mm-hmm. and Ali Krieger is a right back. Yeah. And yet in this game, we started with Krieger and Dalkampa as the centre-backs and Emily Sonnet as the right-back. Mm-hmm. So it, it says to me that uh, Vladko is really all-in on a can Ali Krieger play centre-back experiment. And my take based on this game is yes, against smaller like, like CONCACAF Mino type teams. Mm-hmm. But when you've got Christine Sinclair or Becky... Running in behind you as they did twice to Krieger. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's quite up to the same level as regular centre backs.
0: I got confused for a moment because I thought you were talking about Becky Sabran, and I was like, why would Becky no. run against her? So, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, and yeah. Becky yeah.
2: Sabran, I believe, was carrying some sort of mm-hmm. like minor injury. I think for this game, which is why she's not there. And I, I did a bit of research. Tiana Davidson would have been my guess at like experimental-ish player that mm-hmm. maybe Vlakko would have wanted to look at. I think she had an injury, and that's why yeah. she wasn't called up for the roster at all. But still, Ali Krieger at left centre back is. is quite the experiment
0: it was and I, I agree with you i don't think it worked very well um from from what i saw of ali krieger i don't think she was very confident in the air ryan and i talked about yeah. how Arena had a bit of a uh, a quicksand game and it felt like this a little bit with ali krieger especially in the like final 10 or 15 minutes of the first half that she didn't seem very good in the air she her clearances only went about like 10 yards away when she would have the headed clearances or she would sort of head it laterally into the side, which is not what you yeah. want as a head and clearance. But then I mean, it's tough, right? She's up against Christine Sinclair. Mm-hmm. That's,
2: that's a really tough ask for someone who has played most of her career as a right back.
0: Yes, but I also don't think of Christine Sinclair as being blazing fast, at least not at this point. And yet in the 38th minute, she does get basically behind Allie yeah. Krieger because she sort of spots the, the gap. She's aware that no one is entirely focused on her and then makes that run. And I think Ally Krieger too late recognizes, oh, yeah. Christine Sinclair is in behind me and can't really make a play. It ends up being a good save from Alyssa Nair, but a, a, a better forward, excuse me, not a better forward, but a faster forward certainly increases that gap and causes even yeah. more problems.
2: And I think Canada knew and I think they kind of targeted yep. the space in mm-hmm. behind Krieger because so like twice, Becky did it once and Sinclair did it once. They started like on Dalkamper and ran diagonally across so that they would end up behind Krieger. And I think they sort of exploited basically Krieger's lack of familiarity with playing centre back to exploit that space behind her. Becky with the good runs? Becky with the good runs. <laughs>
0: Um, so I still think we see uh, Ali Krieger certainly involved in the Olympic conversation, but maybe just less so as a center back and more so as a starting fullback or a substitute fullback if the situation requires. But I'm assuming that's what Vladka was going for was seeing just how versatile can Ali Krieger yeah. be uh, if we do need to take her to the Olympics.
2: But honestly, to me, this suggests that there's less chance of her going to the Olympics because what she proved against Canada is that maybe she's not versatile enough to play against high level opposition as a centre back. So it's if anything, it's a mark against her in terms of
0: versatility for the Olympics. Are you at all concerned that the Cooligans are going to want to fight you for this opinion of Ali Krieger? I would be, but I could take them both easily. (laughs) I agree you could. (laughs) Um, Anything else to, uh, to say about this game?
2: Um, The the crystal Dunnett left-back experiment Mm -hmm. is officially over. The results are in, and she's brilliant.
0: Yep. She good. There we go. She's really good. She's
2: she's absolutely out of position. Mm -hmm. She's using the wrong foot. And she still looks like possibly the best left back in the world.
0: Yeah, I think the way you can tell that she is a creative midfielder is that every time she gets the ball at left back, she will not every time, but routinely will beat the first defender. And then you can see her dribbling forward, keeping the ball tight, never looking down, instead looking all around the field and conducting play at the same time. That to me speaks to a person who is normally a midfielder who pulls some strings, but is now playing at left back.
2: Yeah, it's just it's magnificent. It's yeah. magnificent that she's willing to do it and yeah. has been willing to just learn that position to the extent mm. that even with the wrong foot and in the wrong position, um, she's she's absolutely incredible. So yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, I, I earlier on the show, uh, Daryl, you haven't heard this, but like I praised Tyler Adams a lot for basically playing a couple different roles for RB Leipzig in, in their game against Bayern Munich. Yeah. Crystal Dunn is essentially doing the same thing, that she's playing as a left back, <laughs> but also as like a left winger occasionally, slash uh, kind of drifts into the midfield to help facilitate possession there and even creates some shooting opportunities by moving further forward. She can do a lot. And I think that versatility will be, is and will be very much appreciated by Vlatko.
2: All right. So uh, Vlatko and the US Women's National Team, they get the CONCACAF Olympic qualifying win. They are the, the tournament winners. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a bit of research. They haven't conceded a goal in this tournament since 2008 yes uh, so so that's a, a little bit a, a little bit down. about the tournament mm-hmm. but things will get tougher in march for the she believes cup and i think that'll be worth keeping an eye on yep. um i i failed to write this down but i'm pretty sure the opponents are england spain and japan so that that could be fun to watch
0: i've heard of those the countries they're yeah. pretty decent
2: uh-huh have you I, did you read the manchester evening news article about phil neville's
0: wife oh boy that's what i have to say to that oh boy yeah, uh, I did not read the article. I read the initial or maybe I read a blurb from it. Uh, you're, you're alluding to when he uh, left his wife when she almost died during pregnancy to go yeah. run a training
2: session. To be fair, the next line in the story mm-hmm. is he he immediately came back. Yeah. So whoever oh, accepted that missed out the part where he immediately came back. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of other stuff in there, like, uh, like real like basic stuff. Like apparently Phil Neville has never made his wife a cup of tea. What? And Julie Neville says he literally wouldn't know how to. He would not know how to make a cup of tea.
0: See, that feels like... The, the man's the, English. That feels like the Calvin approach to me. I've talked about this before, but the idea that if you do a job poorly enough once, you won't be asked to do it again. And I feel like that's just him. Like, <laughs> oh, I don't even know how... The water's cold? Is that how it works? And then he just doesn't have to do it. Uh, because otherwise, I don't fully understand how Phil Neville is a function, functioning Englishman.
2: Yep. I would say even um, with, with that... That sort of process of making tea, he could get a job in a lot of American
0: restaurants. What, yeah. <laughs> in terms of not being able to do it, you mean? Yes. <laughs> hey, remember your, your awesome uh, hot cocoa in Baltimore? <laughs> I feel like Phil could give you that. <laughs> Although, hot tea essentially just requires hot water and a tea bag. So, if he can't handle that, maybe he can't handle hot cocoa either. That's possible. That's very possible i I did not know that like the the tea situation, and I am genuinely flummoxed by that. I really am like we're recording this Monday afternoon I, my my wife left for work like at seven o'clock this morning or something absurd like that, but I will I can say with confidence that I have made my wife a cup of tea slash coffee in the last twenty four hours. I don't understand yeah. how Phil Neville has never done that.
2: Me neither, but he's hardly ever there, apparently. Anyway, read read the whole story. I, I don't want to get too deep into it because I could be ranting about it for
0: for ages. The Nevilles in the best and worst ways are an interesting bunch. They certainly are. And unless we forget, if people don't know, what's their father's name, Daryl Neville Neville. That's the one. <laughs> Do you know Peter Schmeichel's dad's name? I hope it's Schmeichel. It's
2: Michael Schmeichel.
0: No, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> I would have believed you, and I would have been so happy. that's outstanding work Daryl thank you for that (laughs) All right. well Daryl anything else you wanted to add about uh, this game or any other games from the weekend Uh, no I'm I'm all set thank you Mm -hmm. we didn't mention uh, Tyler Adams or Gio Reyna at all did you want to mention them
2: I mean, I figure you and Ryan have already talked about it. I don't want to sort of go over any ground here. I
0: also think at this point we're going on about an hour and 40 minutes of this podcast. So thanks to listeners for sticking around. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the full show. Uh, Daryl and I will be back in studio Wednesday to preview next week's Champions League games. In the meantime, I'm going to be talking to Graham Ruffin about all things that have happened in La Liga because it's been a strange time for Barcelona and Real Madrid and Atleti and everybody else. So we're going to go deep on La Liga. Daryl is going to be uh, talking to Joe tomorrow. Is that correct, Daryl?
2: Yeah, I'm basically getting guesting on MLS Assist. We'll be uh, going through sort of 10 players new to Major League Soccer in 2020 and why we're excited about watching them. Yeah, so I'll be a guest on MLS Assist with Joe Lowry.
0: Here is another thing that I don't know if you all will talk about, maybe Paul and Sam will talk about, but I'm fascinated to hear more about. Uh, Just before we started recording, or at least maybe an hour before, did you see the Inter-Miami news?
2: Uh no. Oh, did they lost the uh, the uh-huh. trademark
0: thing with Inter? Yeah. Yeah, the first step in that process. So, uh right now we have Nashville without a stadium and we'll see what happens, but the idea of Inter Miami without a name is equally fascinating to me.
2: They're also without a young Argentinian striker. Um, I think his name is uh, Carranza. Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
2: He's going to miss two to three months with an injury. So that is not a good start to the season uh, for Carranza.
0: Not so much, no. Mm. (laughs) I don't think that's how they really envision this. I don't think that they envision playing in Fort Lauderdale, maybe having to change their name and without their marquee signing. That's probably not what they were going for.
2: Mm -mm. But they do have Will Trapp. (laughs)
0: Well, there we go. All right, Daryl. Well, I look forward to you talking to Joe. I look forward to talking to Graham. And I look forward to being back in studio, both of us being in studio together, to talk Champions League on Wednesday. Right back at you, buddy. That's weird.